Oddities, late night movies with Rob and Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddities. We discuss any media that is too bizarre, abnormal, or off kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally, these projects gel. Most times, they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp. I'm General Fade, and I think it's fair to call this hostile territory. And oh boy, are we really in hostile territory this late into the fourth year? With this following up Dinosaurs 3, it, it's not a good two weeks for Rob over here, I have to say. We are continuing on with the 2001 Fort Year, discussing Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes. I, ah, what, is there, what is there to say about this, Zach? What, what can what you is... say about this film that hasn't been said about 9-11? Ex- there you go. Boom. Okay, how do we end this? At- or Snacks. <laughs> All right, we're gonna play the Danny. El- was it, who scored for this? Was it Danny Elfman? Yes, Mr. Danny Elfman himself, with uh, one great opening credit sequence song, and then basically falls to the wayside the rest of the two-hour movie. <laughs> yeah, that opening credits theme is like it, it's slapping. It's kind of, I was like shocked when I started watching this movie and it kicks off with that opening credits music. You're getting all like the close-ups of like the armor and, you know, you're getting the the, like an, uh, the opening credits sequence and stuff like that. I'm like, man, is this going to be good? And uh, no, it immediately then cuts to a monkey freaking out inside of a spaceship and then Mark Wahlberg yelling at it. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's wild. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. It's just, oh, th- I, okay, I this context of course i really have minimal context for this okay but i guess we want to start off with what is i just give like our audience a baseline what is our opinion on the 1968 film like do we hold it in high regard like i just want people to know like where we're coming from that like with this sure sure i uh i know i've seen it once but it was a really long time ago it was one of those things where i think you know it was like on TV, and my parents were like, oh, this movie, like, this is a really, like, good movie, an important movie, and of course, I think a lot of it, my knowledge of it, comes through cultural osmosis and, and things like that. I have nothing against the Planet of the Apes, the original movie, the the franchise as a whole. I've never, I'm not, like, vehemently against the concept of, you know, apes and monkeys talking like I am the whole concept of dinosaurs, which we got into last week. So I, I'm not, like, coming from an intrinsic place of hate with this, but I've always been kind of neutral on it. You know, I, I never really have had any desire to say, oh, I should go back and watch that original movie or anything like that. So I I would say I'm kind of neutral to positive on it from the the little that I know about it. And and also, I think 
in in this little bit of uh, you know our thoughts on the franchise, I have seen the James Franco one. The what is that? The Rise of the Planet yep. of Apes. I saw that a few Rob, years you know, back. Rob, oh, yeah. do you know the order of the modern films? It's Rise, and then do you know what the next two are? I think it's what Dawn, then War. I, I think it is. I, I don't know. <laughs> now you got me confused because now because I'm pretty sure like it's a really weird like out of order. Sure, sure. I've only seen Rise. I've never seen Dawn or War, regardless of the order. Uh, but like I said a few years back, and I remember I like I liked it. I wasn't like despising the movie or something like that. Like there's one scene in the movie where like uh, the the lead monkey, what Caesar, who the the Andy Circus mm. monkey. He, like, actually speaks, and he, like, screams the word no, and, like, the movie, like, plays it really well, and I was like, that's a really neat scene, you know, that type. I think he screams it at Draco Malfoy, because uh, whose name, real name I can never remember. Um, but I was like, this is kind of okay, you know, that type of thing. Uh, I That's the last Apes movie I saw. I, I, you know, my context with this one, the Tim Burton one, is also minimal, but I haven't seen it in so long, and now this is the last one I've seen. And uh, I was really coming into this from a, a, a blank slate perspective. You know, I, I knew not to really compare this to the original. Like, I, I didn't even have the thought or I wasn't like, oh, I have to go back and watch the original or anything like that. So I was really trying to come into this from a like a, a neutral zone, if that makes sense. Oh, definitely. Because, OK, this is my context to all this. This is how I'm going to wrap it together. I remember in the summer of 2001, this being like, one of those like hype movies for me in the sense of like, I was just like beyond excited for it. Um, I don't know why I think it was just the marketing was just very, very effective, effective at the time. Yep. Um, and it's funny cause again, we talked about this in the pre-show recording, but I listened to the blank check episode about this and Griffin like also mentions, he's like, yeah, the marketing for this was just like really, really like, in overdrive in 2001 okay. like this was like this was the definition of like a tentpole that summer um which explains why like the film really like resonated with me mm-hmm. um or at least the marketing did because i do have my ticket stub rob <laughs> i do have my ticket stub i was i had July... to ask you know did you see this in theaters that type of thing Goddamn right i did i saw it on july 31st okay okay which is only four days after opening. That was rare. Usually my parents like kind of like dragged their feet when it came to new movies um, when I was that age. But no, like I was excited to see this. I was so pumped. I remember like, oh God, I think I, I know for a fact I had the Mark Wahlberg action figure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> which, which might be like the biggest quotation marks around the word action ever because he really doesn't do much in this other than just kind of like – be Mark Wahlberg. Oh God, yes. The faces he's making in this movie are so unappealing. <laughs> I had some. I swear he doesn't even know what movie he's in. Like, there's a, there's a point toward the end where he's just like dead behind the eyes. Yep, a hundred percent. But we'll, we'll get to that in due time. So, like, I had the toy, and I always remember this toy. I don't know where it is. There's no way I got rid of it, but it's got to be around somewhere. And it has like the dumbest articulation. And like, like, oh god, stance ever. Mm-hmm. Like, like, oh god, I'm gonna see if I can find a picture of it and send it to Rob right now. Okay. But like, it's just like, it's just the dumbest thing imaginable. And I remember this as a kid, just being like, like can I play with this? Like, like, wh- like, wh- what am I supposed to do with this? And like, he, he came like with his little like phaser gun. It came with um, his uh, oh god, little like remote control. He's always playing with oh, throughout the sure. film, like that GPS slash uh, ship control thing. Sure, yeah, sure. yeah. It's, it, he's playing with that, 
and, and like I'm just like this is dumb. Like I remember I, I think like <laughs> I got the figure before I saw the movie. Okay. So like I was like oh yeah and like, like for my birthday like I want like and this, this is before I saw the movie. I want like all the characters. Like I want like oh god blonde haired woman who's not even really a character in the movie, and then like after I saw the movie I was like okay I'm gonna cut my losses like I want no <laughs> no parts of this. Did um, they make I, an Estella War an action figure oh, god, for this? Yeah. Oh yeah, of course they did, Rob. They made <laughs> figures of everybody in this. Um, everybody got a figure. Like, there was a lot of landfill fodder and like uh, Dollar Tree <laughs> fodder. Yeah, but um, but like okay, baby, though going back to my uh, thing, I saw this in theaters. I. I have no memory of seeing it in theaters, whereas I can remember seeing Legally Blonde. I can remember seeing the score. I can remember seeing, like, Lara Croft Tomb Raider. I have no memory of seeing this in theaters. You know, I have physical proof that I saw it in theaters. <laughs> sure. And after how hype like, – this must have been one of those early times where, like, I was just very, very disappointed by the movie and just, like, subconsciously buried it mm-hmm. because, like, I didn't really even, like – I never even like at that time. Like I liked Bob. Obviously, I liked buying movies. I've only seen this movie three times. I saw it once in the theater. I bought it on DVD in 2009. I can remember that more vividly than anything else. Like buying it right before senior year of high school started. Watched it once then, and then watched it the third time in preparation for this recording. Okay. So pretty much my run on this movie is once a decade. <laughs> sure. Which might sure. be which might be a decade too often because this movie. Like it's, it's kind of perfect when it comes to like cinemodities level. Like if you're grading this like exclusively as a cinemodity, this is like, oh god, for for my thesis of cinemodities, less robs. This is the definition of like a home run. Okay, I'm glad you qualified what you were saying with yeah, I in know, terms right? of cinematics. Because when you said it's kind of perfect, I was almost like, "Oh my god, Zach, are we gonna have a fight?" <laughs> no, but like, no, it's perfect because like, 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 when we did our first like sampler platter series, never mind, and folks, never forget the inaugural episode of Cinematics <laughs> is Batman v Superman. Like, I, I love the fact that I was able to get that done. Like, Rob let me have the inaugural episode. So in a way, I will always have framed the debate when it comes to cinematics. And everybody knows how fascinated I am when it comes to just, like, blockbusters that go off the rails. And this is just that. Like, it's a blockbuster that just, like, it's incoherent. It's There's no structure to it whatsoever. Nobody knows what's happening in the movie it's pretty boring for most of it. Like, like in every like, almost every performance is bad with the exception of Paul Giamatti, who knows the exact movie he's in and nobody else involved with the production is aware of it. Paul Giamatti is the only person that's like, Oh, this is schlock garbage. <laughs> and I'm going to play directly into that. Nobody else is aware of that. I'm glad you say that. One of my notes is legitimately like Paul Giamatti is giving everything in this role as a human traitor ape (laughs) exactly he knows exactly what he's doing he gets it that is somebody who gets it i this is one of those instances where like everybody involved should be embarrassed with themselves like it's kind of like one of those things where like not that this was like like but just like a part of me wants to say this is like not even an objectively good movie it's an objectively bad movie 
but like there's just so many things like even production wise seems bad like there's sequences there's a sequence in this where like they're running through like i don't even know what it's like houses the town square and it's just lit so poorly that it all seems like the same it almost comes across as like a scooby-doo gag with yes. the gang like running away from like a ghoul of the yes. week zach you're and, saying like, so many like, things that i agree with and so many things that i want to bring up as well but i have before we lose this thread i have to say i just looked at the picture of the toys you sent me the Mark Wahlberg toy is in the fucking, like, disco fever pose. <laughs> yes. Yes, he is. And yes, I just, he is. I, I didn't look into this. I didn't think to look into the, the action figures. But, of course, so that's uh, – we have Mark Wahlberg action figure. You have General Fade with Steed, which is the bad man on a horse. The one I'm most shocked by is that they made a Paul Giamatti action figure. <laughs> Because what Limbo. kid wouldn't want to play with the uh, the human trader? Like, he's in the slave trade business of humans. What kid wouldn't want to reenact Okay. <laughs> okay. This is the thing, though. Like, if this movie came out today, I would literally – like, that would be the hardest to find figure. Like, without a doubt, just letting <laughs> you know right now. If this movie came out today because everybody – like, like everybody would be like, okay, I want that kid. Like, that's the best character in the movie. That sure. would be the chase figure. <laughs> like the care, like what would happen is that like like uh, what's her name, blonde woman who has a name who I don't even remember. She's she would sit on the shelves. Helen Bonham Carter would sit on the shelves. Mark Wahlberg would be probably overly plentiful, even though people would probably just buy it. And then like feed or fade in the steed, which is hysterical. That comes with the horse. Yes. Um, and Atar would probably disappear fast. But like no, easily it would be Paul Giamatti monkey. That would be the like the, the hard to find figure. Sure, sure. Uh, it's 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 wonderful. I'm I'm so glad you sent me the the slew of action figures. And I I it makes sense that they would make a an Estella Warren action figure. Uh, I would totally buy that one because when I saw Estella Warren in this movie. You have to know the first thing I thought of was, oh, it's April Truce from the Law and Order universe. She's not just an SVU. She's an SVU and the original Law and Order as a master con artist and murderer kills a bunch of people. <laughs> so I She's also totally... in Kangaroo Jack, Rob. She's also yes. the, the eye candy in Kangaroo Jack. So I totally was like, I would buy that action figure and people would be like, what is this action figure from? And I'd be like, well, you know, it's from Planet of the Apes, but I'd like to think that it's from Law and Order. <laughs> Just one last thing before we move on from the toys. I want to know that, like, in the 12-inch figure version of Mark Wahlberg, he just has, like, a regular, like, like pistol. It's not even, like, like the space phaser. Okay. It's, like, legitimately just a gun. Sure, sure. Oh, oh, geez. Yeah, there's, there's, there's so much I want to talk about. And you brought up a lot of the stuff that, like I said, I, I, I have the same notes I want to mention. And I agree with you. This, you know, not to jump the gun too far, but this is, like, that just off-the-rails blockbuster that makes it so odd. But I have to say, at the end of the day, I think I absolutely hate this movie. <laughs> I think it's boring. I think it's bland. I think the, the word that came to mind is, I, I don't remember the last time you used it, but I know you've used it on this podcast before. This might be the textbook example of a soulless movie. I feel oh, that yeah. this is a hollow... like Just like Mark Wahlberg, dead-behind-the-eyes movie as a whole. And it was tough to get through i think for this two hour runtime i was like and then and then don't even get me going we're gonna have to do a whole discussion on that last scene when mark Wahlberg goes back through the time storm and it's just like what what am i seeing what did i, I just spend my time on <laughs> okay this is the thing though about this movie is it's 
it is soulless. It's a hundred percent like a cynical cash grab movie. Um, nobody involved has any sort of passion for it. Mm-hmm. They're just like going through. The, they're just going through the motions, and, and I think that's what eventually would become weirdly enough like Tim Burton's like calling card. Sure, I would say what? Oh God, post like Mars attacks. Yeah, yeah. Is this the idea that like he's just doing this stuff just to do it? Like he has nothing to say anymore. Like it's just a, like like that sort of just like creative soul that he imbued so many of his like projects with mm-hmm. is long gone now. Oh, absolutely. I don't think I've liked anything after Mars Attacks. I don't have his phone. No, no, Big Fish, Big Fish. I have to see. That's the thing. I'm glad we're on Tim Burton. And there's I'm outliers. Gl- there are outliers. Yes. I will concede that. that. This is the thing I think about Tim Burton is that I I don't really think he's. I guess the best way to say it, he's a major hit or miss director for me. Like, when he hits, he hits. Like, I love, you know, Beetlejuice. I love Mars Attacks. I love Big Fish. Like I said, it's one of my favorite movies ever, which is a candidate for if ever ever went back to the, um, you know, Unexpected Love series. Be like, Big Fish is a slightly fantastical hardcore romance that Rob absolutely loves. And when he hits, he hits. But when he misses... I abhor it. Like, I'm not even a big fan of Edward Scissorhands. Corpse Bride, like we've talked about before, I think is is not good. And, of course, the the most and best example of this is Alice in Wonderland, uh, which is, you know, a war crime, I think we've said before. Now, to be fair, I haven't seen all of his movies, because there's a good bit, and I haven't... I think Alice in Wonderland might be the last one I have seen. But it's, Rob, it's, you didn't tell me you didn't see Dumbo with Colin Farrell? I did not. Doesn't he have one arm in that movie? Isn't that his stick? Does he? he? I think he like comes back from war and he's missing an arm. And I think that's what Colin Farrell's playing in Dumbo. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't think anyone saw Dumbo. Uh, but it, it's kind of like, so Tim Burton, I what you were saying before about how he's like, he doesn't have anything to say and all that stuff. That's, that's kind of, you know, how I've been thinking about Tim Burton ever since, I think, Alice in Wonderland. And... And even Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which I saw in theaters because I love the the Gene Wilder, you know, Willy Wonka. And that one was just weird and, and bland to me as well. It's it's in that same camp is what this is. Yeah. It's yeah. like soulless. But like this is where I disagree with you about uh, Planet of the Apes 2001 is that I think it's – I don't know if it would be called entertaining. But like I find it just stimulating enough that I'm not bored. Okay. Yeah. Then we we. I was never bored. I was. I was. I was never bored through this. Like enough goof. And maybe it's like the nostalgia part of my brain where I'm just like, where is this going? Mm -hmm. Because like obviously I remembered like major pieces of this, but like I was never bored through any of this. And like I know like halfway through they get to like the derelict spaceship, and I'm just like, oh my god, we still have like 40 minutes left. Like Jesus. But like there's something always happening that I was engaged. I guess that's it. I was engaged. I might not have been entertained, but I was engaged, which is something I can't say for a lot of movies we've talked about in the fourth year. Sure, sure. So, so no, that, I, I see where you're, coming, where you're coming from, and you know, I'm sure as we get to more scenes, we'll have some some disagreements about you know what was engaging in, in it or not. But so on, on Tim Burton, I did want to look into which you can read so much about. There's a long history of trying to you know make a modern Planet of the Apes movie since the the what the five movies in the the franchise from what the 60s and 70s and it goes all the way back to like the late 80s and there's you could read so much about how this went from like adam rifkin to peter jackson to oliver stone to philip noyce to chris columbus to james cameron and you eventually get to tim burton and they all had wildly different takes on the story 
uh, one of which I do want to bring up because I thought it was interesting. But the thing that I found in my research that really was interesting is that Tim Burton comes on board and they basically, the studio basically, like, rushes this movie into existence. Like, you can Mm -hmm. read quotes from so many people saying, like, they had a release date set before they had shot anything of the movie. And Tim Burton wanted to start, and they wouldn't let him start. It got started late, and it had this fixed release date. And from everything I've read, they were really rushed in every aspect of this movie. So I'm, I'm a little less, you know, tempted to say, oh, Tim Burton didn't have anything to say. I'm, I'm kind of thinking it's a combination that he didn't really have anything to say, and even if he did, he didn't have time to say it. You know what I mean? That's fair, but if you look at, like, all the other, like, tentpole films that he would do, late, like, for the next, God, 20 years, yeah, yeah, they all fall into the same sort that's, of just, like, rut. That's where the, the argument for it has to be there's some loss of, you know, Tim Burton's, his, his fingerprint, his stylistic fingerprint, his, his narrative fingerprint, things like that. But I think he lear- – I, again, I don't know. Tim Burton's like an eccentric person, like to say it like, mildly. <laughs> but like but like I can still – like my main memory of him like in the modern era is him being like interviewed in that Superman like Liz documentary. Yes, yes. Where he's just sitting there and he's just so mentally checked out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like he's clearly an intelligent man, but he just seems like someone who's running on fumes. And it's just that like – again, look at all the movies that came out after Planet of the Apes. Like, like the, the big films. Big Fish, which I think Rob – would say it's more classic Burton. You have Charlie yeah. and the Chat- Chocolate Factory, which is a going through the motions film. Corpse Bride going through the motions. Sweeney Todd, which is probably the last instance of him being like closer to like classic Burton. Mm-hmm. Alice in Wonderland, which is the atrocity. Yep. Dark Shadows is him going through the motions. Frank and Weenie, I think is cute. I like Frank and Weenie personally, but I think it's very like, oh God, it's like, Burton mixed with Spielberg, but with the Spielberg side winning out. Okay. okay. Um, you have Big Eyes, which is again him like it's him trying to get back to his roots, but once again it's just too slick and hollow. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Peregrine slick and hollow. Dumbo slick and hollow. Sure, sure. And in there, a lot of existing properties being rebooted or adapted. You know, like Big Eyes is what. A big like Frank and Weenie's what his short film from years yeah. ago. So at least he's doing something there. Uh, Big Eyes, I think, is just the story of, uh, I think it's Margaret Keene, the artist. Yeah. And then everything else in there is, you know, Alice in Wonderland, reimagining adaptation. Um, Dark Shadows, that was a TV show. Miss Peregrine's Home for uh, Not X-Men is a a young adult series. Dumbo, of course, is an adaptation. And it's, like, weird that he falls into that category of just, oh, I'm making things that are based on other properties. And Big Fish, too. Big Fish is a, a novel, first and foremost. It just it's comes so, it's comes across so weird to me that he falls into that just doing that over and over. I don't, I don't know if it's falling into it. I think it's just like it's – I think he's just doing it to do it. Like I think it's the idea that like, okay, I can't sit I, – I'm Tim Burton. I've done – I've accomplished everything that I've wanted to accomplish. Mm-hmm. I might as well play in my wheelhouse. It's like, and I think that's what it is. Yeah. I think it's just like, it's, it's, it's a weird like version of like the Adam Sandler thing of like, Oh, I make movies not to make movies. It's like a glorified vacation where I get paid. Sure. 
and, and I, you know, I mean, if, if that's what he can do and just coast off of it, it's not, he's not going to make any movies I like or want to see, but there is a sense of, you know, good for him. <laughs> but it just makes you wonder, though, is that, like, I get it, like, maybe you're just, like, creative, like, I don't even know if it's creatively burnt out, but maybe just creatively spent. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, why, why not just, like, hang it up? Like, like I don't know. Like, just, like, either make, like, spend 10 years working on your opus, you're Tim Burton, you've made Disney enough money like they would easily like you could you could cash in all your chips for like a hundred million dollars to do whatever you want. Yeah, I I I don't know. I I maybe he will make that opus very late into his career, but I just it's like why? So it's just like the only thing I'm terrified about Burton is that I'm just afraid he's gonna go back to Beetlejuice at some point. Mm-hmm. I'm just I am so like Beetlejuice is weirdly enough like in the same camp as like the 2001 Planet of the Apes, where like it made so much money. And yet nobody ever tried to infringe upon it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And, and that's where I'm just like, oh, God. I'm just like I, – it's just going to take like one thing. And like he said like he's game for it. I think it's Keaton that's always the one holding out Okay. because Keaton's just like like you're not going to be able to like, – like, again, it's because it's going to ruin the first film. Like it's going to be the – like I think the best case scenario for Beetlejuice 2 is like Halloween 2018. Like that's the ah. – that is the best case scenario where it's like this is solid, like this is neat, but like you're not gonna like recapture lightning in a bottle. You're sure. just not. Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you absolutely because I think Beetle a lot of those early Tim Burton movies I think is in some sense capturing lightning in a bottle. Um, Beetlejuice I think is an example of that Ed Wood I think is a good example of that Pee Wee's Big Adventure is a little different because I think you had the existing character of Pee Wee and what people were going to expect from that with his twist on it, but. I don't know. It's it's just wildly interesting, and I'm I'm interested to see what he does to talk about it, not really to see it though. <laughs> but that's the thing, though. Like, I would rather see Tim Burton, like in all honesty, like like do one of those like, oh god, like archive books of his entire career. Oh yeah, and like just like I, I, and do something like that. I would rather like like I'd rather have him do like a David Lynch. I just go like make music, paint. Just, yeah. just do that. Yeah. Just Let do him that. Do whatever like, he wants to do, and then when it turns out that you know he's gonna fight tooth and nail for something like Lynch did with Showtime for Twin Peaks The Return, uh, you know it's going to be something he cares about. And that'd be great. Yeah, and I just don't know why he doesn't do that. Like, I just don't... I, again, like, maybe he just d- doesn't have any sort of passion for anything anymore. Like, maybe yeah. that's just... I don't know. It's weird. He's a goober. He's, um, he is a goober. He is a goober. One of my notes is actually, oh, Tim Burton, you silly goose. <laughs> I think I wrote that so- when his name popped up in the credits. <laughs> Okay, so here's a provocative question for you. Which performance in this film is the worst okay. in, or, and or which is the most embarrassing? I'll let you – if you feel you can split Ooh. it up or you think the, the same performance shares both titles. Which is the Ooh. worst performance and which is the most embarrassing? Because I think it's definitive which is which. God, I – oh, this is a tough one. This is a tough one because I – there's so many bad performances in this movie that I was only really focusing on the ones that I liked, which which were two. Uh, w- w- the worst perform—I'm really tempted to say Mark Wahlberg. I think Mark Wahlberg is so dead in this movie, but at the same time, I don't think there's a single human character that isn't dead in this movie. I think, I, I think worst I'm going to have to go with Mark Wahlberg. I think in terms of embarrassing, geez, I want to say that—, that stupid little kid that wants to fight and falls under his horse at the end. I hated that kid. <laughs> uh, 
but I'm willing to excuse that because that's at least like a child performance. And really oh, no that's, that's like fair. A good okay. child performance. Uh, maybe then I want to throw in Estella Warren as well because she has no – she makes no decision in this movie other than to open her mouth a little bit. Like a la Michelle Rodriguez from Fast and Furious. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know what Estella Warren reminded me of in this movie? You remember uh, – oh, God, probably not – from Transformers 3, Revenge of the Fallen Moon. Remember when they got rid of oh, Megan Fox yes. and they brought Rosie Rosie Huntington-Whitley? That's what she reminded me of. Like, yeah. the entire movie. Remember that? It's just, like, it's just the idea of, like, we're going to cast someone really pretty whose job it is to, like, just look beautiful. That's a real—I didn't even think of that, but you're absolutely right, Zach, because there's that scene that I know we laughed at hysterically in that Transformers movie where in the middle of a battle it just cuts to her. Not doing anything, just looking in the distance with explosions happening behind her. And it's like, this is the stupidest thing. She has nothing to do. She's literally just eye candy. And that's what Estella Warren becomes at the end of this movie. She's just kind of, like, hiding behind rubble while the whole battle's happening around her. Exactly. But to answer the question, the most embar- – in my opinion, I agree with you. The worst performance in the film is Marky Mark. He is – he's just, like he, – he doesn't know where he is. Like, he's just so checked out and removed. Um, and I don't know, like, he's just, like, even a couple times, like, he was doing, like, the shtick he was doing a lot in the 2000s, where, like, I think Andy Samberg lampoons it, like, on Saturday Night Live, where he's like, hey, how you doing? <laughs> Say hi to your mother for me. Like, he's just doing that. Like, there's so many times this movie, like, it's like, why on earth would I ever buy him as, like, an astronaut scientist, like, training monkeys in space? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm like, it, I, it's like, no, like, this is just. No, this is this is unbelievable. Like the idea of like monkeys riding horses is somehow more believable than like early two thousands Mark Wahlberg as like a space astronaut. It's like I'm sorry, space astronaut. That's redundant. I love is that like those a space astronaut? What do you want to be when you grow up, Billy? A space astronaut, <laughs> as opposed to a deep sea astronaut. Yeah. Um, no, you're not no. wrong. I mean, Mark Wahlberg doesn't even have any reaction to anything in this movie like literally shows up on the planet of the apes and he's like oh talking monkeys okay i gotta get back to my planet or whatever and then at the end the 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 logs from his spaceship are like yeah you're kind of like two to three degrees removed you're like the inadvertent cause of the planet of the apes and he's just like huh look at that and it's just like dude do something Every, like have he, any reaction <laughs> but this is the thing though it's like i don't know once again who's to blame for this like like he, he, he mark Wahlberg's become this weird sort of actor where like he's only good in certain roles yes like it's funny in the blank check discussion they kind of nailed like the like the nail on the head when it came to like oh he's really good when he's like positioned is like the person with a lot of adversity to overcome with like a chip on his shoulder sure um that's usually what his best like he's done a lot of crap lately like he's he's almost as like as bad as like a like a red box actor as <laughs> yeah. bruce willis has become um but like the thing about those like in this movie so many things happen and they're just glossed over and the movie doesn't even give him enough time to react yeah yeah it, it's the strangest thing to to see our our lead our hero our action man you know, our, our for all intents and purposes, our Charlton Heston analog, who's and Charlton Heston, if I remember correctly, is just pissed in the original movie. To, for Mark Wahlberg, just to be like, you know, why'd you smash my gun? Oh, like why'd you smash my gun? Okay, we're not going to talk about that anymore. And it's just like, what? And what moving is going on? on? <laughs> like, like that's okay. That's the thing I find so fascinating is that like the movie begins with him like in space training. What's his name? Pericles. Pericles. Yes. Yes. And he's like, stupid monkey. And then, like, female scientist is like, be nice to the monkeys. They might be our overlords someday. 
And he's like, eh, get out of here. And then, like, they send the monkey, like, into the giant, like, space cloud. And he's the time in, like, storm. The monkey- yeah, I, I, it's a time storm. What's, that's, I, just, I just love that phrase, Excuse time me. storm. <laughs> time storm. And so, like, the, like, Pericles disappears into that. He's like, I'm going to get my monkey. They're like, request denied. He, like, steals a spacecraft, which is great. And he, and he says, goes- I'm going to get my chimp. <laughs> that was one of my, my – <laughs> I was going to say that at the beginning. I was going to say, and I'm going to get my chimp. And it's like, is it even your chimp? Sir, Delta Pod has launched. Delta Pod, your flight is not authorized. I'm going to get my chimp. You bring that thing back here now. Return to base. Never send a monkey to do a man's job. Are you training? Aren't you training all the chimps? You're just like the head of that simulator. It made no sense. We're going to have to get into how little sense this it, movie makes, but, but yeah, please continue. No, nothing, <laughs> nothing in this movie makes sense. So he goes into the, like, the time, what was it called? The space, time, what? The time storm, yes. <laughs> time storm. Oh my God, Rob, Rob coined a new term. Um, he goes into that and like he comes out and just like immediately he's just like, completely forgets why like he did anything in the movie yes yes because like one thing i, I don't want to get too far off track because i still want to say who i think is the most embarrassing yes. performances in this movie but rob has this okay you are a big fan of not just cinema but of literature can you think of another character in either cinema or literature that is both the MacGuffin of the film <laughs> and also also the Deus Ex Machina of the Ooh, film. That's a really good question. <laughs> Has that that's where this film might be profound. That's a good because point. somehow the MacGuffin is also the Deus Ex Machina. Yeah, I would have to think about that a good bit. But that's a right? really interesting could, point. Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't think about that because I was thinking about this movie today, and I'm like, has that ever been done before? <laughs> where like the catalyst is also the thing that like saves the day in the end, and is completely absent for the events of the film. Uh, or of, of the story. Uh, but anyway, though, so Mark Wahlberg goes to the planet and automatically forgets why he's there. And he's yep. just like, he's weirdly unfazed by everything. Like, he's like, I'm getting back to my people. They're going to come save me. My people. Then, like, we get to, like, a derelict spaceship that, like, we find out, like, plot twist. Oh, man, it's the spaceship that, like, was the mothership for, like, him earlier in the film. And they're like, oh, these ruins have been here for thousands of years. And it's like, but wait, huh? Like, like how is that even possible? Like, the yep. timeline, like, like, we see his little, like, time clock, like, speed up, and it doesn't go ahead by thousands, and we're just like, okay, whatever. Oh, we're going to get to the, we're going to get to the, the time clock and the time storm. But it's, it's the most ridiculous shit. There's so many moments in this movie where I'm hearing something or seeing something, and I go, excuse me, what? <laughs> <laughs> it's not just ridiculous it's also like inexplicable like yeah, what nonsensical inexplicable it's unbelievable apparently i was reading that like in like the original like dvds like there's inserts that actually explained how time like worked in this in this film okay okay the only thing that i could when i was trying to think about it because i was trying to think of anything while i was watching this boring as hell movie that the time storm is like last in first out like it's like a yes, lifo yes. system and so it's like it's, i'm just like okay whatever time storm do whatever the hell you want but at the same time this time clock zooms forward in time like it says that like the years are getting higher so it's going forward in time but then the things that go through it are going forward in time in a reverse way from we'd expect it to happen and 
I there's I went down a rabbit hole for like 20 minutes while I was watching this movie googling how do you keep track of time and space and I want to talk about that a little bit cuz it fucking made no sense to me. Jesus, there's a moment in this movie at the beginning when they, the ship is near the time storm, I think before anybody has gone into the time storm, and someone has the line of dialogue, I'm getting every electrical communication from Earth from all time. And yeah. I went, what? This is weird. I'm picking up frequency patterns. Tune them in. I'm getting every electronic communication from Earth from all time. The storm must be bouncing it back to us. <laughs> How would you know that? That would be that would blow up your computer, I think. <laughs> but Rob, we see little like flashbacks of like newsreels from the thirties. Yes, yes. It, we see Hitler in one part. Yeah, we see Hitler. It was the weird I'm just like, what the hell is this? Why can't we just be hearing the Danny Elfman opening credits song again? <laughs> <sighs> so yeah, so Mark Wahlberg just like okay. Yeah, Mark Wahlberg, like, even the moments where the film actually gives him a chance to breathe, he does nothing with it. Exactly. Because, like, cause like, toward the end, like, we'll have a part where, like, he's rewatching like, the, oh, God, video log of, like, the Mothership crew, and he's just, like, staring into space. Mm-hmm. Then, like, Helen Bond Carter in, like, Tom Cruise prosthetic makeup from Vanilla Sky shows up, <laughs> and it's just, like, and, and she's just, like, it's okay, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, like, this is like, I'm like, she has like 16 layers of like prosthetic makeup on, yet somehow she's like acting more than he is. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> I think about it, she has layers of rubber on her face. Yep. Yet she is able to communicate more emotion than Mark Wahlberg with nothing separating him and the camera. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. From, from what I found, which I was most interested in, because I think the best part about this movie is the uh the effects the makeup the the rick baker you know doing these monkey out with these ape costumes and stuff like that uh, apparently it took about four and a half hours to get people into the into the costumes and about one and a half hours to remove it and i think this is important to bring up because I'm, i want to take a guess for the most embarrassing performance are you gonna say tim roth Absolutely. Okay, I think it, Tim Roth was so pissed off, like he was just seething, sitting in a makeup chair for hours, and that all comes through in his performance. Like, there's the scene where Michael Clark Duncan is like, we didn't catch the humans. They got away yes. on our horses. And Tim Roth throws <laughs> a, a totally, it's not earned, just for saying our horses, Tim Roth throws a tantrum of, like, the highest order, and I think Tim Roth is just pissed off at the movie. I don't think he's pissed off at the humans, he's like existentially pissed off that he's in this movie and he just plays it to the nines. I I kind of love Tim Roth in this film. <laughs> no, like he like it's a definition of like a schlock performance yes. cuz like it's like it's such an angry performance and it's like he's just like has a I, there's no explanation as to why he has such a chip on his shoulder. He just hates humans. Oh yeah, no, I get that. No, clearly, <laughs> clearly. But that's um, it. There's no explanation. That. That's all it is. That's his entire character. <laughs> that's that's literally all it is. But like, he's so just like everything he does is so like overly embellished. Absolutely. When he, I I was like, this is this might be the craziest thing. When we see at the dinner party, him like pick up Mark Wahlberg pry his mouth open with his hands, look down in his mouth and go, is there a soul in there? And I'm like, this is not proper dinner party etiquette. (laughs) Like, Mark Wahlberg's trying to feed you something. (laughs) 
But that's the thing is that like it's such a like scene chewing performance. Oh yeah, yeah. And I don't think that Tim Roth was going for that at all. Oh, okay. I don't think he. I don't think any. Like that's why I say where Paul Giamatti is the only like like great performance in this movie Mm -hmm. is because he realizes that this whole thing is schlock. Yes, absolutely. He's playing it up. He's he's given some comedy. He's he's actually the one asking the questions that we have as an audience, not about the the plot or what's going on in the movie but about the existence of what's going on in the movie <laughs> well yeah and he's also he's he's playing into the ridiculousness of it all where tim roth is playing this too stoic he's playing the character too like seriously like that's the thing like, yes. he's playing yes. it like like it's just like he's taking it too seriously like, like you said that part where like he throws the tantrum and we get like five minutes of him on wire work, just like jumping around the room and then cutting a chandelier down. Yes. I'm just like, it's, it's, it's like I can imagine like, like us sitting in the theater for this being like, like just laughing. Like that is Cinemati's equivalent of Friday the 13th, the remake in like, where are you gun? Yep. Oh, is that yeah. like, like, like I, I, I audibly said, what is going on right now during that part? Oh yeah. It's one of the most insane things I've ever seen. And and you're right, you put it in a really good way that he's, like, playing it so angrily and so seriously. Like, like you're right, it doesn't come across as this kind of, you know, scene. He's not in on the joke. Like, that's, yeah, he's, taking, he's, he's supposed he's taking to be this, like, I feel like Tim Roth might be thinking, like, oh, I should be this animalistic, angry, like, primal level um, leader of the military. Because that General Fade, I think they say multiple times, he's the leader of, like, the military that has to deal with the politicians and stuff like that. And and he's taking it seriously, where I love, like, Paul Giamatti just going for how goofy this movie is. Like, there's that scene where they're going to steal the horses to ride across the river, and there's a really, really dumb bit of nonsense in this movie that, that the apes are, like, phobic of water. Like, they will cower in fear when they're near water. And there's a scene where they're like, okay, Paul Giamatti, you're coming with us. And he's like, why are we doing this? We should just go around the water. And I'm like... <laughs> Yes, thank you, Paul Giamatti. You're not making fun of anything in the movie. You're making fun of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And that's, like, again, but the Tim Roth stuff is just... Every scene with him, I would say, is embarrassing. Because, like, he never gets... Like, even... like This is what I mean by, like, decisions. Is that, like, at some point in the film, or numerous points, he should have just been like to Tim Burton, we don't need wire work for me to get on a horse. Let me climb onto a horse. Yes, and he gets on a horse so many times. (laughs) I, I know. And, like, he should have been like, Tim, like, that should be the first time, like, we, like an audience sees me get on the horse. Then after that, every other time should just be me, like, just normally getting on a horse. Yeah, yeah. It, it, and, and that's where I mean where, like, he should have known better as an actor. Sure, sure. The one, one to say no. And I think that's probably another issue with this movie is that, like, no one just knew how to say no. Nobody knew how to question anything. Yeah, I, I know where you're coming from. I don't know if uh, – when, when you phrase it the way you have, it, it definitely – and I think about it that way. Tim Roth, Tim Roth's performance comes across as embarrassing. I didn't really get embarrassing immediately as I was watching the movie. I think because so much of the rest of the movie bored me so highly that I was just attracted to whatever he was on screen because he would do ridiculous stuff. I do have to say, though, the one scene of his that did come across as embarrassing where I was like, what the hell is going on? This is, like, almost dumb is when he's trapped almost. behind the glass— in the uh, at the end when he's like just shooting the the phaser gun repeatedly and it's just bouncing everywhere and then he's like hiding under the desk or whatever yeah. that was embarrassing <laughs> i was like what is I, I was literally like what just happened why does he keep shooting the gun <laughs> yeah I, I, that i okay 
I'm willing to forgive the gun shooting thing to a degree. Like as a like like narrative choice, you'd be like, oh, he doesn't know what this thing is. Like he has no understanding of like how it works. Narratively speaking, that is sure. like I, I'm willing to forgive that though. But as like a directorial choice, Burton should have been like, okay, this is dumb. Like we like the audience gets it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's where like and then like even like the thing at the end, like where you said he's like high, like, cowering under the desk. It's like no. Like, no, there's nothing about this character that would, like, lead us to believe that he would start to cower. Yep, 100%. So, like, it's also just kind of, like, weirdly, like, disjointed in that way, too. Yeah, I, it's one of the, it's another layer of this movie where I'm just like, okay, I guess that happened. It makes no sense, you know, in, in continuity or what we know about these characters, but there we go. Even, I think, when he's just holding the gun at Mark Wahlberg, like, before he's ever shot it once, and, like, Mark Wahlberg puts his hands up. Tim Roth makes this face that is absolutely hilarious. Like, I can't even recreate it. Like, you'd have to see it on Google Image or something. It's just, like, the most ridiculous, disgusting face. (laughs) I like that he's always sniffing the gun. Oh, he's sniffing, like, everything in the whole movie. And he's, like, he says, near the beginning, he says to Paul Giamatti, he's, like, you stink of human. And it's, like, well, duh. He wrangle he's wrangling humans all the time and then like picking them out to sell to people. Of course he would. It's like you don't go to like a fisherman and say, Oh, you smell like fish. It's like you just know that. Like, duh. We've ex- oh, God, it's the dumbest shit. <laughs> it is. It is. And that's where I, I again I again I wanna blame like like in the story, the script, but like Burton and the actor should have known better. I, I would agree, absolutely. But yes, that that's the big thing. Is that like I think just everything with Tim Roth is just like abhorrent in my fa- one of my favorite pieces of trivia about this film is that he gave up being a uh, professor oh god no he gave up being snape but think about that he gave up being in the harry potter movie yep absolutely as one of the most important characters to be in this <laughs> oh it's wonderful it's wonderful to think about that yeah i saw that in my research as well and uh you know so that with tim Roth that he gave up that and all the stuff with him uh sharing the scene with charlton heston where he's like, I did it, because Tim Roth is like so anti-NRA from what I read that he's like, yeah, I did it because, you know, we're professionals. I can work with Charlton Heston. And then later on, he's like, if I knew we were going to have a scene together, though, I would not have been in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, that scene is maybe the only objectively good moment in the movie. Because, like, there's actually something, like, it's, it's it, Fade is not, like, being over the top. Mm-hmm. He's actually, like, relative to everything else he does in the film, he's rather reserved in that scene. And that entire, like, thing about, like, the idea of, like, oh, God, mankind's relationship with guns to, like, yeah. everything else on, like, the, um, oh, God, what's it called when you sit there? The, uh, peck- not the pecking order of things, but just, like, the, oh, my God. The hierarchy? Like, the, yeah. the structure? Sure. Yeah, sure, you know what I mean. Still not what I'm trying to say. Okay. There's, a specific, there's a specific term. I can't think what it is right now. But, like, it's that, the top of the food chain. Sure, sure. That's a like that entire thing about like oh look what happened to mankind like the moment you take away their guns like their entire like level of authority just dissipated mm-hmm. like that is clever like that is a clever idea for like making this like like, like a minor theme in the film is like oh once mankind lost its guns it basically had to surrender its power to a stronger like primate. Yeah, like more more physical rather than – because I think Charlton Heston says something like, you know, well, one, after he 
tells Thade to break open a sculpture that has a gun inside of it, which is bonkers to me. And then yes. he's like, look at this gun. This is like the testament to how, how powerful and inventive humans can be, but also how destructive they can be. And and I'm like, that's interesting. You know, this is actually something that has, they have introduced an object, which they set up earlier, the, you know, him, Mark Wahlberg having the, um, the future gun that gets smashed. I'm like, There's, there might be something here, you know? Is this going to come down to, like, who has the gun type of thing? Which it kind of does, but really doesn't. But that's it. That's, like, the only moment, the touches that we get of something, like, as a neat idea. And really, I- I'm kind of taken out of that scene with Charlton Heston and him talking about that because I want to know how the hell did they get a gun inside a clay sculpture? <laughs> That's that's the joke. They probably had to sit there, put it in there, then make the vase around it. That's insane. That's insane. <laughs> Rob, of all the things in this movie, that doesn't even rank like top 30. No, not at all, but it's still insane. <laughs> but you're right. That's that's the scene that there's some interest. There's like an idea almost about to be presented, and it, it doesn't really go anywhere. Because that's another thing that I was – like at the end of this movie, I was so surprised by – it's so shocking to me that this movie is so boring, but it is trying to get at, I think, a lot of things, like the, the gun idea that we were just getting at. I think the idea of, you know, like, class structure with between the apes and the humans, about racism, about the rights of living creatures. Like, there's a lot of stuff that this could be touching on, and it throw, tries to throw all a little bit of each thing in there, and then it just doesn't work. It doesn't come together. It's not really saying anything. It's just bland. Yeah. Like I said, there's a lot of stuff. Like, even the whole idea of, like, having the house humans... And it's yep. just like, oh, like that wouldn't be allowed in today's movie. That wouldn't be allowed. <laughs> One of which is uh, Eric Avari, who we saw in The Mummy. And The Mummy. Oh, yeah. Just The Mummy, yeah. Eric Avari, I just love him. He's a great actor. Uh, he has nothing to do in this movie until at the very end when he gets thrown yes. by an ape and gets a Wilhelm scream. <laughs> yes, he does. I laughed at that. I'm like, that's great. Yeah, um, to put it that blatantly prominent in the movie, I was like, that's bold, you know? <laughs> Which makes you wonder, whoever was doing the sound editing certainly wasn't taking the film seriously. Yes, ex- exactly, exactly. Uh, but yeah, there's there's so much going on, and it, the movie has like nothing to say. I mean, even the the whole kind of, like you said, you said it best before, Mark Wahlberg, he has like some memory problem. He forgets why he's doing things. He goes into the time storm to save Pericles. When he lands on the planet of the apes, he's just like, okay, I just gotta get back to my people. At the end of the movie... He's reunited with Pericles, and he leaves him behind. That's the thing that blew me away. I was like, the whole impetus of the story was to save your monkey. And you just say, hey, stay with the apes. You know, I'll see you later. And they're like, can you please stay? You'd be good. And he's like, no, fuck you guys. <laughs> Pretty much. And it's even the like, strangest he, thing. And I think that's also weird, too. So the movie basically, like, gives him no reason to have to go back. Yeah, exactly. He's found, he has, he can have, like, a dual life with loving Helena Bonacarta ape and loving Estella Warren. He'd be the king of the world at this point. Like, him and Pericles would live as gods of human and monkey together. And he's like, nope, I want to go back to the time storm. And it's just like, why? Why would you want to do that? <laughs> and it doesn't make sense either because we get, like, that video earlier on. Like, like, all of his friends are like, so when are you coming back? Yeah. Like, you're not getting married. You've got nobody special for you. And, like, so he doesn't even have that impetus, like, in Interstellar with Matthew McConaughey where he's like, Murph! Yep, yep. Murph! Like, you don't even have that. It's like there's no reason for him to go back. Yeah, that's that's what I thought when I was, like, watching the movie. I was like, what is the point? What was the point of that video, like, postcard he got at the beginning? Because you're exactly right. They're all just like, look, these two people are getting married. Mark Wahlberg, you have 
no connection to anyone here, really. We just all kind of like you because maybe we're in this big group of friends and one of us is in space and that type of thing. It's nothing like, you know, we get, like, the daughter of his, like you said in Interstellar. It's nothing like we get his parents. It's all just friends that are just goofballs that seem to not really care about him. Like, I think that's one of the things that, you know, we would see better if it was just, like, a very personal message from someone in his family talking to him, and that gets cut off and he's really, you know, disturbed by it. But instead, it just seems like his friends sent him a message because they were like, oh, we're all together at this party, we're all drunk, hey, we should send a postcard to Mark up in space, you know? And it's like he has no real connection, and so he should not go back to regular world, he should stay and be king of of Planet of the Apes world. That's what I would do. (laughs) Except that they have to have their, their faux Planet of the Apes ending. They have to have their big reveal. Completely incomprehensible, I would say. Oh, yeah. Oh, 100%. <laughs> I, even as a kid, I had I, I would say not until this viewing that I finally get that. It's supposed to be General Faye at the end. It's Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, because one of the – like the text on the, the engravement on the back of it says, like, this is our monument to Thade. So wh- I, I don't – I don't get it, of course, because we have this uh, last-in, first-out time storm that just seems to exist forever. I The thing is, like, do we are, – are we supposed to understand that at some point Fade went into the time storm and beat Mark Wahlberg back to Earth? But if that's the case, how did they make everybody a monkey? Like, I don't I... – it's, it's fucking incomprehensible. <laughs> yes. And it's one of those things where it's like, well, if Fade went back – and the time storm, weird dilation, whatever the hell is doing that one, we can't even begin to fathom what it's doing. If he went back far enough to like cause evolution to change, so that everybody would be apes, like on the planet of the apes, why are all the apes doing the same thing that humans are doing? Like why, why... are they driving police cars? Yes, yes. What? Oh my god. Oh my god. I can't wrap my head around it, and it bothers me. <laughs> Because all that matters, Rob, is you have a similar ending to the original film. I know. So that's that's the thing. And I think that's the one bit, like I know you were talking about before, the marketing in this movie. The one thing I did remember from the marketing and from like when this was coming out, the, the question of what is the ending going to be? Because if there's one thing I think that has, you know, cultural osmosis permeated the culture, it's the ending of the original Planet of the Apes. It's a solid twist ending that recontextualizes the narrative that you just saw, which is what a twist ending should do. And the question was, well, what is the ending on this one going to be? And it's just like, this does it in such a bare, basic way that's so incomprehensible, it's not fun. It just makes me, at the end of the movie, go, why? Why did I watch that? <laughs> yeah. It, I, I would love to know what the thought process was, like, like between the original, like, like, when they came up with that new ending. Or, I'm sorry, not the new ending, but just, like, re, like, I don't know how to do, like, reimagined ending. Yeah, but it doesn't recontextualize anything. It just adds questions that don't matter for the narrative. It's like a it's like a reveal for the sake of having a reveal, which is why I'm so exactly. angry at it. I kind of like the dumb face on Mark Wahlberg has like at the very end now. <laughs> he's just he's got the dumbest face at all points in this movie. I know. I love that. Like I kind of like love that. I'm just kind of like okay, like it's kind of worth it just for that. He's just like, "What?" Yeah, yeah, it's it's and like all the apes show up and they like arrest him and like Everybody in the world 
arrests him, and it's the weirdest thing. And it, I don't know that that bothers me a lot. It, like twists that have no purpose. It's, you know, like I was yelling at Zach however many months ago about goddamn Mr. Robot, one of the worst TV shows I've ever seen. They just had twists for twist's sake, where a twist, huge twist, would be revealed, and it's like so. Like that doesn't change how I thought about anything or any of the events that actually happened. This is purposeless. This is just like you know, it wasn't that cool. We hope people tweet about it so more people will watch next week's episode. That's what this seems to be. It's the, whoa, they wanted it to be this, like, did you see that coming? And it's like, well, one, no, because no twist was necessitated by the rest of the events of the movie. And two, you cannot see it coming. It, it's in, incongruous with the rest of the film. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, but again, it just felt like something that had, it was obligatory. Yes, because of the original, absolutely. But speaking of, like, things that are, like, obligatory, I gotta give this movie some credit because, like, for the most part, it does its own thing. Like, verse, because I know, like, this this movie was kind of the, like, phrasing of the reimagining versus the remake. Sure. When it came to, like, marketing, when it came to, like, making films like this. Yeah. And for the most part, outside of having, like, oh, God, monkeys walking on two, like, two legs... This movie, for the most part, I would say stands on its own, removed from the first one. Like, yes, there's some really, like, hokey callbacks to obviously we get, like, get your hands off me, you damn dirty human. Oh, absolutely terrible, yeah. (laughs) And, like, yeah, but I do have to say, the part with Charlton Heston where he's like, damn them, damn them, I'm like, I'm like, that, that's a pretty clever callback. Sure. Especially that, like, it's him. And, like, Heston's, like, literally wearing, like, again, like, 25 layers of, like, like rubber on his face. Yes. And the dialogue works in the context of that scene. Sure, sure. And I know you're not wrong. I, I think from what I remember, like I said, I didn't rewatch the original. I haven't seen it in so long. From what I remember of the original, this is going for something different, which I, I'm kind of with you. To give this movie the—, the if we're searching the bottom of the barrel for credit, that might be the the best thing we can grab onto. Yeah, no, I think I think it's effective in that regard. I still I think the only objectively good moment in this film is that Tim Roth Charlton Heston scene. Sure, sure. Uh, the, it, the one that sticks out to me is that once again, it might have been like a callback to the original. I don't know, but I kind of like the idea that when Mark Wahlberg first crashes on the planet. After he goes through the time storm and he, like, enters the atmosphere, you hear something, like, rustling through the woods, and the first thing he sees who pops out of the woods is a human, not one of these ape creatures. And I was like, that's, I'm like, that's kind of something, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, like, there, there is, like I said, I, there are moments in this where you can see, like, coherence. Moments yes. of coherence. Yes. But they're few, very few and far in between. <laughs> oh, boy, aren't they? <laughs> Like, I, I kind of actually like the, it goes on way too long, I think, but the, um, the, the talk, sitting at the dinner table talking politics scene, like, that was something where I was like, okay, we're setting something up, you know, we're talking about the rights of humans and, and how, you know, we're using them as slaves and how there's a bunch of tribes out there that are, uh, where they're, the ape cities are expanding and encroaching on their territory and that's causing some of the problems. And it made me think of those, like, you know, those politics scenes and like just sitting around a table like in Fantastic Planet. How do we deal with the tiny humans, you know? And and I'm like, this could be interesting. But then, like we were saying before, you get Tim Roth freaking out and doing all this crazy nonsense that almost, you know, doesn't fit that scene in the slightest. 
it's it's just so oh god it's so strange <laughs> well it's cartoony at times and that's where again once again i blame the actors because the actor to be like tim like like as in tim burton yeah like no like this isn't appropriate for this scene yeah yeah absolutely absolutely I, and i'm with you also to to bring up something you said about you know uh tim roth getting on the horses I, I i was at a certain point i was like what the hell are the physics of these of these movies of this movie it's like one of those things where I think in, you know, Charlie's Angels, Full Throttle, and we discussed that. The beginning, they throw physics out the window, and you're just on board with, oh, this is going to be goofy, nonsensical. It doesn't matter if somebody does eight flips before they land, which isn't physically possible. And here, they play it like that's realistic. Like, they play it like, you know, Tim Roth can just jump everywhere. There's the scene. We're going to have to talk about the fucking monkey sex foreplay scene. But when the humans crash through when they're trying to escape, the monkeys from the bed, like, leap up, like, eight feet in the air with, with seeming, like, no, no uh, preface to it, like, no running start, no, like, actual bending of the knees. They can just levitate, and it's the weirdest-looking thing. And the movie's like, no, this is just what apes can do, right? They swing. They got power, you know? <laughs> <laughs> they got power. Um, <laughs> monkeys yeah, can't jump on walls unless they have power. <laughs> Fly, you bojo! Don't burst the work on water! Unless you've got power! <laughs> <sighs> oh, God. That's... Pr- I, I'm trying to think, like... If, fi- if there's one thing that you could fix in this movie, what would it be? Would uh, it be the script, the performances, the, the the casting? I was about to say, the first thing that came to mind is recast Mark Wahlberg. Give me who would you even, ca- who would you even cast in that role? Anybody for two thousand one? More than Affleck. One, I want more than Affleck. Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck. If we had somebody with enthusiasm, it would do a lot of heavy lifting in this movie. I think. Who that would be? I'm not. Josh sure. Hartnett. Josh Hartnett. <laughs> oh yeah, and talk about enthusiasm. Ah. <laughs> uh... I think it. I really think a lot of the problems land on Mark Wahlberg because you don't have like. He should be the one reacting to how crazy this situation is, just like we would – anybody would be if they were thrust into this scenario. Yeah, but at the same time, though, like we've seen Mark Wahlberg be like a relatable like a- a character in a movie. Sure. I just don't know if like – once again, like is it the script to blame mm-hmm, or was it Burton mm-hmm. for not getting the performance out of him? Yeah, I, I know what you're saying, but I don't know. It's tough. It's tough. Like, you probably see like read the story. So like apparently they went to everybody with this role. And like everybody sure. turned them down. Yeah, yeah. With uh, with how big of a property this was, yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, depending on what you read, everybody was considered. <laughs> and that's the thing. So like, who like like that thing like Wahlberg has charisma. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. just that like Burton didn't pull it out of him. Yeah, that yeah, that's a good point. What that, and that leads me to the question of you know if if we had somebody other than Wahlberg, but we stuck with Burton as the director, would we have the same problem of that that lack of enthusiasm? I, I don't know. Like, again, that's the thing about Burton, though. It's like, you look at a lot, like, like, we were talking earlier about a lot of his movies, and when it comes to just, like, how just, like, soulless they feel, mm-hmm. I think that's on his shoulders. Okay, okay, that's fair. Like, like, because I'm, like, again, going back to, like, early 2000s, is it, like, who's a director that you could have hired that would have done, like, something, I don't want to say lively, but just given this some level of energy? Sure. Oh, that's a good question. You know who probably had a lot of fun with this movie? Who? Joe Dante. Oh, Joe Dante is a good one. Absolutely. Joe Dante would have had a lot of fun with this. That would have made it more goofy, added the levity to it. I was also thinking um, 
Barry Sonnenfeld after like Men in Black and dealing with a lot of creatures and different worlds and things yeah. like that. Once again, that's a lot of levity. That's a lot of, you know, a little more not taking it as serious. But like, that's the weird thing is that like, I don't know, once again, like what kind of movie the studio is trying to make. Because like yeah. everything that I had read about this was that like the studio just wanted schlock. They're like, we want monkeys doing human things, wearing like <laughs> business suits and dresses. And it's like, like that's all I read for this. It was like they just like every single time they would do like a screen test, like in the like early '90s for this, it was like the studio executive being like, we want monkey ballerinas. Sure, like why? Sure. It's like why? Like why do you want that in this? I I'm actually glad you bring that up because that that's I think gets back to what I was saying at the start is that I think there is some impetus of the problems of this movie that falls on tim burton but i think the studio has some problems with it as well or at least maybe the clashing of the director and the studio i i did read that when chris columbus was apparently attached to this one of the an interview with a producer i think don don murphy or ryan murphy i just don't wrote down murphy said in an interview he was like yeah chris columbus they brought him in and they did screen tests of monkeys skiing i don't know why <laughs> <laughs> that's what i mean like every like when it came to like screen testing things, they just did the goofiest things they could think of. They're yeah, just like, yeah, it's like so let's just weird do to this. Settle on this, which is the the, the non goofy version of it. Absolutely. <laughs> well, it's brooded. Like that's the thing too about this movie is that like considering how like inherently goofy the idea of Planet of the Apes is, and once again, this is like a like going back to the original film. It's a Rod Serling like like notion. Sure, sure. And yet. Again, it's like they made this out to be so just – oh, god. Like not, that thing about the original Planet of the Apes is that like you have to like take it seriously mm-hmm. but not take it so literally. And yet, and yet like this is something that just takes itself way, way too – like, like there's, there's no wiggle room. Like it's just that like this is a very serious thing. And there's no level – there's no layer of camp in it. Like you know who would have been a great other director for this? If they weren't a manslaughterer, oh god! <laughs> I don't know. That, that might be too, too goofy. I think I think Landis knows how to balance tones, though. That's fair. I, I guess. Yeah, I'm thinking of. Oh well, as we've discussed on this podcast before, which you were not here for, trading places. Uh, there's a man in a gorilla suit at the end of that movie. <laughs> so Landis See, had some experience. Well, speaking of uh, men in gorilla suits, we guys have Louis C.K. from the Fort Year. Oh, sure, sure. Um, also, I'm, I'm glad we mentioned this because, as we said, Rick Baker does the makeup for this. Rick Baker plays a gorilla. He's in a gorilla suit in the third act of Joel Schumacher's The Incredible Shrinking Woman. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah. He's like he's like the one becomes The Incredible Shrinking Woman's best friend at the end of the movie. <laughs> I did not know that. Speaking of weird things there in the background— what did you think of like all the extras in monkey costumes? Like like at numerous points. I know like we have like like the most like oh god, exaggerated, highlighted like extra is the monkey like smoking the hookah. Yeah, the hookah monkey, which I believe is Rick Baker from what I read. Yep, yep. Um you have the like the what the teenage monkeys drinking out outside at night at a certain point. I had I had no problem with that. That was the stuff I almost wanted more of, like flesh out this city. I didn't like the children. I think every time we saw like a child monkey, it looked really weird. Like in that opening scene when Helena Bonham Carter is like, "Who told you you could throw rocks at humans?" You know, and the little kids like, "You're a human lover," or whatever the hell he, he says. I that's one of the things that you brought up before in the escape scene when they're like running through houses and outdoors at the same time. I have no concept of 
the spatial orientation of this city and it's disorienting. And mm-hmm. and I think that's what I wanted more. Like, show me more of this, uh, like, f- liven the city up, flesh it out. Don't show me these very linear pathways when we're actually traversing it. You want more of the society. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, the movie throws that away in, what, 30 minutes? Maybe 35 yeah. when they're just in the desert? The it's, it's the weirdest. It's the weirdest goddamn thing. So I, I do want to mention, in, in terms of, you know, talking about the um, the studio like you said, wanting this goofy stuff, like just have a monkey doing human thing. And then these directors taking it a little more seriously, there was one pitch for this movie that I absolutely was I gravitated towards, and I have to talk about it because I think you're going to love it as well. In 1993, so we're talking years before Tim Burton had any inkling that he would make this movie, Oliver Stone was attached. And I couldn't find if he was a, a writer or a director or both or something like that. But when Oliver Stone was attached, he had a pitch for this movie. And you can read the longer quote online, but the part that really stood out was he said for Planet of the Apes, I quote, My concept is that there's a code inscribed in the Bible that predicts all historical events. Oh, the the apes were there at the beginning and figured it all out. End quote. Could you imagine... How much we would love this movie if it was Bible Code Planet of the Apes. <laughs> <sighs> I would Ooh. love if we just got to talk for like two hours about the Bible Code again. Code. <laughs> Why not, Rob? Why not? But I mean, that's kind of the thing is I, I've, and there's even more pictures that you can read from all these different people that came and went, not even the directors, all the different variations of the script that this went through, like I said, and since the 80s that they wanted to reboot this property. And I think that's kind of the thing. The, these creative forces were always taking it seriously, and then the studio was taking it to the goofy extreme. And probably, hindsight, of course, is twenty twenty. After reading all this, I think we should have met somewhere in the middle. That would have made the the best version and maybe that's what you know the the james franco one is that the reason i i kind of enjoyed that one is it doesn't take itself too seriously and then you know the moment that a monkey talks it's a little goofy it's it's very you know serious in the moment because it's a big reveal but it's not on either extreme it's somewhere riding the line in the middle and like what you were saying i think that's where planet of the apes works best because it's it's not like a serious tale. It's almost like a, an allegory. Like you said, a Rod Serling idea, like a an extended episode of The Twilight Zone. Rob, may I say something controversial? Uh-oh. I, I guess. Is 100%. it about the Bible code? <laughs> if only. If only. I would – much like how I've said before when it comes to Batman v Superman, I will 100% take this over the rise of the Planet of the Apes any day. I, that, want, I, okay. I want my bonkers insanity over <laughs> safe. I, I know I, what you mean. I know what you mean. I would rather have all. I'd rather have confused, dumb Mark Wahlberg <laughs> see Tim Roth, monkey Abraham Lincoln, than like Draco Malfoy being yelled at by like Andy Serkis. That's that's fair. I I know where you're coming from. Absolutely. I would because I watched part of that second like Planet of the Apes movie. Like mm-hmm. the, I don't know. It's called Dawn War. And like, like the like first hour, like I think half an hour of that, it's just like it's like a silent film to CGI monkeys. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, and I'm just like, everyone's like, oh wow, look how good this is. And I'm like, no, it's just <laughs> animation with no dialogue. Like, like sure. how is this? Like, it's not groundbreaking. Like, there, there's nothing. It's just like digital imagery. It's a cartoon at that point. Yes, I, I've never seen the second one, and uh, but uh, I. 
I've heard that that's what a lot of it becomes is that Andy Serkis doing his his you know motion capture performance for Caesar. I'm pretty sure it's Caesar, the uh, the smart monkey and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah I... I see from my my perspective of like actually working in the industry, making an, an enjoyable movie. I and like I said, I want to ride the line between goofy and and serious and stuff like that. The cinematity side of me totally agrees with you, Zach. Where we should one hundred percent have the the bonkers extreme failure. <laughs> exactly. I want the and that's something we should probably note about this is that it's not a failure. That yes, failure in the sense of man, this did not come together as a movie. Financially, though, this movie made some bank from what I read. It did. And, like, that's the thing. Like, people – like, audiences did not like it, and Fox has always been like, you know what? Like, we cut our losses and we ran. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, like I, I don't know, though. Like, like the film, like, was ne- – like, everybody hated this movie. It has no – like, there's not even a cult fan base for this film. It's kind of just mm-hmm. there. Yep. The only reason why it's remembered is because of its uh, legacy. Yeah, yeah. It, it really – I that's, that's a good point. I feel like it just is – Another example for people to talk about the the weirdness and the the maybe you know once again soullessness of modern Tim Burton movies. Why well, not even its place like in the uh, like Planet of the Apes franchise? Oh sure, sure, absolutely, yep. Because like we should also just like briefly mention that like what happened at the end of the second film from the original franchise. You mean yes? Is that when the planet blows up? Yes, they okay, blow yes. the planet up. I've read that. Yes, that that the series they do like what isn't what like Saw two or Saw three they kill Jigsaw and then they're like oh fuck why would we do that I feel like the Planet of the Apes they're just like fuck it we'll blow the planet up and then they go oh well how do we get back to this franchise it's a bold move <laughs> it is and that's why they had like for like the third and fourth one they like went back in time and and that's the thing so like this has always been a weird franchise like that's. Like, Planet of the Apes has the weird honor of being, like, the first film to, like, really be, like, light, like merchandise, licensed, mm-hmm. like, all that. Like, even, like, pre-Star Wars, like, by almost, what, a decade? Sure. So it, it will always – that's the thing about this film. I think it went for the fact that it's, it's a very strange one-off. It's an enigma. That's probably the best way to put it. It's, it's an enigma in otherwise – peculiar Hollywood franchise. Yeah, yeah, that's a, Enigma is a really good way to put it, and I think, honestly, from everything we've been saying, you know, with the studio thoughts, with the director's thoughts, with the, the actors and, and people not saying no or not pushing back on certain ideas, it might be, like, a really weird example of there were too many cooks in the kitchen, but the cooks weren't doing anything. Like, too many ineffective cooks in one kitchen, if that makes sense. It's committee filmmaking. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, speaking of of who would we have to play this role? Of course, like you said, you know, almost everybody was given this role. One of the things that comes up a lot in the research, because he was attached to it for so long, was good old Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yep. And so he gets attached to lead when, at a certain point, I think that's when Philip Noyce comes on as the director. There's like the mid-90s, but Philip Noyce leaves for Chris Columbus to come in, and then Chris Columbus leaves to do Jingle All the Way, but then Arnold stays attached for another few years before he leaves to do something else. That's an interesting question. Of course, it would have been a different movie at the time it came out with a, a completely different cast, completely different script. But what do you think of Arnold as a leading man, as a as a more – I guess that would make the movie more action-based, right? Then we got this trying, attempt at being like a heady commentary on all these different things. I, like I said, I don't think Arnold would have ever worked, especially like if this film came out – 
like in the late nineties, early two thousands. He was getting too old. Sure. His his star power was kind of spent at that point. I like, think about Arnold in the late nineties is what. End of Days, The Sixth Day. Eraser, I think, is in that. Well, Eraser's leaving before. Like, that's like Eraser's 96. Before? Okay, okay. That might have been what he left uh, Planet of the Apes. Yeah, that's, okay. that's what I've heard. Yeah, that's what he left it for. But again, that was like, that came out like in 96. The thing that I think about Arnold in this movie is, you know, if, if you have all these serious takes on it, you have all these super strong monkeys that can defy physics, I imagine someone went, well, let's have you know, the biggest man in the world, Arnold Schwarzenegger, like physically biggest, fight a big, strong monkey, you know, that type of thing. Like, I feel like that's the the extent of that idea to have Arnold Schwarzenegger in this film. It's just, he's going to go toe-to-toe with a monkey and get thrown around and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. But the problem, too, is, like, when you cast Arnold Schwarzenegger in something, you you automatically, it's less now, but more in that, like, still, like, time frame, he's Arnold. Yes, Absolutely. Nothing can stop Arnold. <laughs> and that's that's the thing, is that, like, I remember there's a quote about um, when Spielberg was making Jaws. Like, apparently Charlton Heston wanted to play Quinn. Okay. And he, it's like, oh, like, he's like, I'd be interested. And, and Spielberg's like, no, you're Charlton Heston. Like, the shark doesn't have a prayer if you're, you're in this movie because you're goddamn <laughs> Charlton Heston. Yep. Um, and that's the thing. It's like, I don't think that would have worked. Um, it's too much clashing of genres because Schwarzenegger has so much baggage that comes with him, like in a, yeah. in a like, how do you want to call it, like a niche like way. I I don't know who would be like if you take Marky Mark out mm-hmm. and replace him with another actor. Like, in all honesty, I could, I don't know who else would you put in that role in, in that time period in the in the early two thousand. Yeah, it's tough. I, I I don't know who else would have been like a rising star at that time period. That could have done it because again, like obviously you would go to your people like your, oh god, your again DiCaprio being one, mm-hmm. um, even like I don't know, like would John, how would Johnny Depp have done that role? Right, he would have uh, fallen into the same trap, right? I, I Wahlberg, think so. I don't... Slightly better, but not much better. Yeah, it would bring not as much enthusiasm. Geez, I'm thinking, you know, to to pull from the fort year, I, the the thing that comes to mind is Brandon Fraser. That would add the the levity to it, but. Is he someone that you want to lead the lead this huge movie in this reboot of this franchise? I guess two years after the Mummy, it might work. Yeah, but he was the, he was a property of the Mummy at that point. Sure, sure, yeah, definitely. And he's too goofy. And I think I think there's a level of again, go back to the, we talked about the Mummy. There's a level of can- I think that's yes, probably yeah. like the version of the Planet of the Apes 2001 that works is called the Mummy Returns. <laughs> sure, sure. Because the Mummy Returns has just enough camp that it's able to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. That Brendan Fraser might put this too much into the goofy zone rather than in that riding the line, like we were saying. Okay, of course. I think the the true answer, if we want to pull from the four years, Tom Green. <laughs> well, well. Uh, oh God, that's an interesting question. I'm trying to think of like all the other big actors. Like they wouldn't. I think about it. like Marky Mark was in that same, like what like Matt Damon. Oh, Matt Damon's an interesting one. That, that, but I don't he think he would do little... much better. Mm. Yeah, but like Matt Damon, like really, I think about it. Matt Damon for the most part, like in something like this, would be just as brooding. He he would play it, I think, just as brooding. But at least there'd be there. I think he would have been able to put a little more life into this performance. A little bit more, but I don't think it's like with the same script and direction. I don't, I think he would have got yeah. a marginally better. Film. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's a, even that's like, a good point. Even Brad Pitt, like I think like Brad Pitt would be probably one of the better ones as well. Mm-hmm. But but again, you would need someone that would like you need someone to also work like get Tim Burton to kind of add a le- like just add some levity to it, not yeah, camp, yeah. 
yeah. but levity. This film takes itself way too seriously. Yeah, yeah like this is a film with the main, main problem. Yeah. Outside of Paul Giamatti, there is no camp in this film. Intentional camp. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, what about that? What if we had Paul Giamatti in a dual role? He's the the limbo, the ape, and he's also our scientist. <laughs> if only. If only. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's a tough. It's a tough question, and it's it's just so. I don't know. It's like depressing to think about how this could have been any better, or we want it to be any better. But at the same time, it's it is this such an odd representation of. You know, our, our, I feel in our fort year, this is like a standard of the fort year of how big and boring it is. Because even Pearl Harbor wasn't boring. I mean, it had boring parts, but I think this whole movie was a slog. Well, is it boring or is it boring? Re- like, I'm going to rephrase that. Is it objectively boring or is it. Okay, one more time. <laughs> is it absolutely boring or is it relatively boring compared to what we're used to now in 2021? That's a good question because i was like that's the thing is that like a lot of movies in the fort year i think are engaging they're just not as like add is like we're yeah, used to now yeah. i mean that that's what i was hoping to get your th- i know you said it earlier but like you had no real memory of seeing this movie in theaters i'm pretty sure i saw this on like an hbo or something at late 2001 but i have no memory of it. i don't even remember the ending you know i didn't remember like the um the the abraham lincoln with general fade show up so that's kind of where it was like did i feel this way back in the day did you and that's the thing i feel like well, that that's... might be the key to it <laughs> But I think like, I think like the the obvious answer is this film did not resonate with anyone. Sure. Like this this is the definition of like a film that made like a lot of money yet no one cares. Like it's probably the closest contemporary example of this is something like the Lion King remake where it's like oh it makes all this money but like no one likes it. Yeah. Yeah. But like think about it. like I was excited for this film. The marketing for this film was like to the nines. The opening weekend proves that this film like had very good marketing. And then like it's just like word of mouth this kills this film. Yep, absolutely. And that's the thing is that like this movie was never there's never been a time where this film was regarded like well. Mm-hmm. Even mm-hmm. as like a cult classic, it's never gotten to this far because it's just there's nothing to latch on to. Like Tim Roth is too just all over the place. <laughs> yeah. Um. Even Michael Clark Duncan, like who's one of the better performances in the film, because at least he just seems to be this like doing exactly like what you'd expect is yeah. like first lieutenant man or first first lieutenant ape. Um. But like even there's like stuff in this film that like doesn't even make sense on it. Like oh god, like you'd expect like on a narrative level because like you have him, which I don't even know his name, and you have like oh god, his mentor. And they confront each other, and yet, like, he kills his mentor, has no, no remorse at all for killing his mentor. Mm-hmm. Then, like, Pericles shows up, and he's like, man and ape are equal. We yes. will not mark graves because <laughs> they are all the same. And I'm like, wow, now that's a, like, that's like a 180 that gives you whiplash. It's kind of the most ridiculous, the whole end battle is one of the most ridiculous things, but that moment especially when just, you know, Pericles' ship lands, and immediately everything is over. <laughs> It reminds me of like like that moment in the Matrix Revolutions where the kids like the war is over. Oh yeah, sure. <laughs> so speaking of that that battle scene, one of the things that I did not fully understand is uh, they Mark Wahlberg at a certain point realizes that one of the fuel cells for his mothership is still full or active or whatever the hell it is, and he's like, "We're gonna lure them in. We're gonna lure a bunch of the apes in, and we're gonna." 
basically cause a nuclear explosion. Because I think at a certain point he's like, these are like nuclear fusion reactors to keep this going forever or something like that. And we see this. This this plan is successful. It's like their first big wave, the humans' first big wave of attack. And they blow up a shitload of monkeys. And it's absolutely hilarious to see all the tiny monkey bodies flying around in the wide shot, like little specks and stuff. I thought that was wonderfully hilarious. But they do this. A big battle occurs. I think Pericles lands. Everybody stops. Uh, Fade is like, no, I want to keep fighting. And they run back into the ship. And everything in the ship is fine. And I was like, didn't they just cause this ship to explode? Like, how is everything still intact? I That confused the hell out of me, Zach. <laughs> I think what he... Okay, there. I agree with you. That, like, entire plan is just goofy. And I wish the movie had more of that. Because, um, like, yeah, he's like, oh, like, the, the energy source is, like, nuclear, so it lasts yes. forever. Yep. Then he's like, oh, I'm going to trigger, like, some sort of, like, oh, God, I don't even know what you would call it, exhaust mm-hmm. something. It, it, like, it vents something, and it just it causes, like, it basically creates what? Like, all the monkeys to fly up in the air. It doesn't really do anything. It just kind of stuns them. And then all the humans come out with, like, clubs and axes and just kind of, like, beat them to death, which is, again, goofy and hilarious. That was the right. only way I could rationalize it was it was, like, a fairly small explosion that caused a shockwave that sent everybody flying. But I feel like the movie wants it to be, like, we just literally blew up a nuclear reactor. I think it's supposed to be exhaust. It's kind of like, like, kind of like one little, like, like final, like, like, poof. Before, like, it runs out of gas. Okay. Which okay. makes, which, which runs contradictory to his thing of when he says that, like, oh, yeah, it can run forever. Yes. Um, yes. And plus, I don't understand how, like, a 2,000 plus year old ship can still have any. I think, like, what is the half life on some of this stuff? Like, it, it can't last, like, <laughs> thousands of years. Um, but, but whatever. Who cares? Um, but yeah, like, it, it creates, like, this little shockwave. And even that, like I said, it's very, very, doesn't really align because it's like, oh, like, oh, send the first wave in. And it's like, okay, and, like, why would you blow your wad on the first wave? Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, like, there should be a moment where, like, general, like, like, you have, like, Michael Clark Duncan, and it's like, should we send the first wave in, store, sir? And they should be like, no, send send them. It's like, sir, all of our troops, I want him dead now. Sure. And, like, and it should be like that. Then that's what causes it. Like, let Fade's hubris be his downfall. Yeah, yeah. Then we have Pericles show up. Then there's, like, a fist fight between, like, it's funny, like, we'll see Thay, like, he's just, like, breaking people's necks, like, he's just, like, breaking, like, backs over his knee, like, over the top, like, we see him chasing Marky Mark around with Pericles around the entire, just, like, whatever you want to call it, spaceship, and you have all that happening, and then probably one of the more heart-wrenching scenes you have, like, Pericles is trying to save Marky Mark. And, like, Faye just throws him against the side of the ship. Yep. We see the monkey bleeding out. We see legit, like, pools of blood in the sand as the poor little monkey is just, like, walking around, I, I crawling. And then, like, we see two different times we cut to him. We see, <laughs> like, like what, uh, Helen on Bonham Carter and, like, that group just see this, like, monkey that's supposed to be God just like like crawling like bleeding out and they're just like eh and they walk right <laughs> past him yes then we cut back to the marky mark fade fight and then we see marco clark duncan monkey and he like sees pericles bleeding out crawling he's like eh and just walks <laughs> by and then i'm like oh my god i'm like what is going on right now and then like we cut back like obviously like marky mark trap stayed like in the glass like 
what bridge yeah, yeah and then like we cut back and like he goes like marky mark goes to pericles and he's like the poor little monkey just crawled to his cage for like protection because that's where he feels safe yep and i'm just like oh my god like this is like genuinely heart-wrenching and it's so out of place with everything else that's been going on for the last like 90 plus minutes oh absolutely it, it really it's is, jarring it's really out of place and i mean even uh, the isn't it something like what Thade gets trapped in uh, behind the glass, the bulletproof glass of the uh, of the spaceship, and Michael Clark Duncan shows up, and d- just Mark Wahlberg says something like, "He's the bad guy, the, the like the, Zemos or whatever your god is was the one that killed the humans, and you know there's nothing you should be angry about. You should side with me." And Michael Clark Duncan's just like, "Okay, he'll turn us all into slaves. Kill him." Now listen, this is where you're from. We brought you here. It's the truth. We lived in peace together. It was Simos. He's the one who killed everybody. He's lying. Help me, my friend. Kill him! Everything I have believed is a lie. You and your family have betrayed us. I won't help you anymore. (laughs) (laughs) It it made no sense. I'm like, there's nothing you could say to him that would convince him that, you know, like, Fade's... Like, he should have been like, Fade tried to kill your god, you know? But instead he's like... Mark Wahlberg retells what he heard from the ship logs earlier, and Michael Clark Duncan, for some reason, this changes his whole worldview. I guess he had an epiphany when he sees him. Like, okay, Rob, to be fair, if you're an ape man and you <laughs> see a petite little monkey come down from a spaceship in the sky, like, you know what? I'm willing to give him the epiphany. I'm willing <laughs> for him. Like, that's the sort of stuff I'm like, you know what? If I was an ape man and I saw a little monkey man come from a spaceship in the clouds— if that doesn't if that doesn't give you an epiphany, nothing will. And I, that's a fair point, I guess. The uh... I will, I will, like I agree with you once again. Like in the context of the story, I think it works, but like narratively speaking, it is a lazy, lazy choice. Yeah, yeah. I guess maybe that's a that's, there's two different types of people. You know, when when a smaller version of yourself comes down, of your species comes down and in, in from a spaceship, uh, you either revere it as a god and change your worldview, or you just kill it. <laughs> Whichever comes easiest. Yes, yes. Oh man, that's 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 that was a doozy. Where he's, I'm just like, so how's he gonna deal with Michael Clark Duncan? Oh, just say a few words to him. Of course, that's all it takes. <laughs> well, Rob, the movie's almost over. Like, come on. Yeah, they have to rush to the ending of uh, you know g- getting Abraham Lincoln uh, Thade over there. They also have to rush to Marky Mark kissing Helena Bonham Carter ape, which I find wildly unappealing. <laughs> At least that makes more sense than like what's her name like like blonde lady. Oh yeah, her just being like, "Hey, we went on this adventure, or you went on this adventure." Kind of. Well, nobody really went on the adventure. <laughs> it was I don't know. There was just something about that kiss between Marky Mark and the Helena Bonham Carter and all that that prosthetic face and stuff. I know they don't really go for it. I think it's a pretty small kiss, but I'm just like, Ugh, I don't know if I like that. Apparently, like, you probably read this like Tim Burton one, like full on like bestiality, and they're like, and the studio's like, no, and he's like, can it be veiled bestiality? And they're like, no. <laughs> yeah, he wanted some type of like interspecies love story, 
Um, I, I know there was, I forget whose it was, but there was some early pitch in like probably the mid to late nineties where it was like, they wanted like a, a half human, half gorilla hybrid to be a major character, which gave me uh dinosaur boogaloo vibes from the Raptor clone and stuff like that. Little girl Raptor clone. And it's just, it's just so strange. I, I mean, I, I, I don't know if I would have liked that better. It would have been goofier and more out there if we had like a human and ape relationship, but I don't know if I want to see that. <laughs> I think that's what you, like, this is the thing, though, about, like, the new movies they're making, is that, like, I don't think you could do that in the new movies, because, like, they're, they've made the monkeys so, like, oh, God, photorealistic. Yes, yeah, absolutely. It's, 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 it would be jarring to have that, whereas, like, in this sort of thing, like, I, I would, I, I don't know if I agree with it, but I would be much more conducive to that sort of, like, thing, to that sure. sort of, like, plot line. Sure, yeah, and, and you know, now you say that, it kind of, like you said, the photorealism and making them, like, they are true, the monkeys and apes that we know, you know, they are, they become, like, the, the evolved apes of the series, it it makes sense that it works better in, like, a um, a Star Trek or a Guardians of the Galaxy, where there's just interspecies sex constantly, because they're all different, they're from different planets, and that's, like, what these creatures would do. Here, it's a little weirder, where it's like, well, no, they kind of, they're the ones that we know. Uh, so that makes it a little, a little less acceptable. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but what, what we do, do wanna... get is in terms of sex, we get an ape sex foreplay scene. I think that's the best way I can describe it. Where, where sexy ape wants to have like initiate intercourse with giant fat discussing orangutan and the woman starts like shrieking and jumping around, which comes across to me as foreplay. What an annoying nuisance it would have to be to deal with that every time you wanted to have sex. Like, hardcore, loud shrieking prior to the sex? That's crazy to me. I found that scene unsettling. (laughs) Speak for yourself, Rob. Speak for yourself. You're into the loud, raucous noise. (laughs) You mean you're not? I start, like, every time I'm about to sit there and enjoy some adult activities, I start, like, (laughs) (laughs) I was about to say, that's why I put dubstep on before I... That's like my sexy time music. <laughs> <laughs> Let me put on something to, to set the mood. <laughs> I found that scene just absolutely ridiculous that it would even be in here because it's one of those things where, yeah, maybe they're trying to flesh out the you know the world or the society of the apes because we know they have to be having sex because we've seen kid apes. We've seen all this stuff. I just found it so strange to actually sit through. <laughs> What do you think of that scene like the little girl monkey and like she like adopts the little girl like she's like oh just like, like what do you think of that like she has her like locked in her bedroom yes that was the closest thing to like pure horror because it's something like you know the the little girl monkey is like you know good night or I'll we'll play tomorrow and it cuts to the girl in the cage and she's crying <laughs> that's just like this is weird <laughs> like that's the thing about like everyone's like oh the makeup in this movie is like you know this movie's kind of trash like the makeup is really good mm-hmm. like the makeup is very hit or miss in my opinion like fade and michael clark duncan are great yeah but like helen bomb carter just looks like a mess yeah yeah and it's like in paul giamatti's solid shrug it's like he's solid 
But like, I think a lot of the stuff is just kind of like, like, like Helena Bottom Carter. I think is genuinely bad. Yeah, I don't like Helena Bottom Carter at all. I'm glad you bring that up. And like I said before, I don't like any of the children. Everything else, I'm kind, I'm pretty much fine with. The Paul Giamatti one might be the one that's a little on the edge, but it might be because he is the one playing it so goofy and expressive that you can tell it's makeup. Where at least with some of the others, like, they are so stone-faced. And, I, I mean, I think the Tim Roth makeup and costume really, like, matches with his face. It makes that expressionism work a little better, albeit embarrassing. But no, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much fine with this for the most part. But you're right, yeah. Helena Bonham Carter I didn't mention before. That is, I, that does not look good. <laughs> no, I agree. It's, it's, eh. It's bleh. So speaking of, of, of sex and evolution, another question I had for you, Zach. Is the implication... When when we get the the logs from the spaceship, that every human on that we see in this movie is descended from the people that crashed on that spaceship. The humans? Yes, because that's the thing. I it, guess, yeah. Because it's like it makes sense that it's like, oh, the apes. You know, they they had all these apes on the spaceship. They crash landed. They eventually, you know, rose over the humans and stuff like that, and they began to evolve over thousands of years. I'm fine with that. But there's so many people on this planet. Like we said, they, there's so many captured by the apes. There's so many in tribes that are, like, trying to, you know, run from the apes to not get captured. And I'm like, how many people were on this space station? <laughs> like, like how could they have really, you know, like, populated this new world? Because, I don't know, I, I, I didn't, I don't think it was explicitly stated. And it was a question I had where I'm like, are these the ones that are descendants from the spaceship or the humans left over after some like crazy apocalyptic event or anything like that? But I, I also think the, the, the point of this movie is that our world, like our Earth as we know it, where Marky Mark is from, and the planet of the apes that they go to are different planets. That's at least what I took from it. Uh, oh, God, I didn't even it's think so about ambiguous that. that it's like it's like you know it makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> no, I agree. Yeah, I wish I had an answer. <laughs> I don't think anybody has an answer. <laughs> Fair. Fair. Because, you know, that goes back to what we were saying before about the ending. It's like, what the hell is that ending when we are dealing with, you know, if Thade somehow made it back to Earth, if they are different planets, how did everybody turn into apes? It, I don't know. It, it's one of the things where it's like, I, I don't think there is an answer. It's almost futile to think about it or try and parse it. Rob, are you insinuating that the filmmakers, especially Tim Burton, did not think this through? <laughs> I think that's exactly what I'm insinuating, which I'm glad you bring up because there, there's definitely a few places I read. They cite Tim Burton in an interview saying where he's like, yeah, the ending was supposed to be there so I could leave it open for a sequel. And they were like, would you want to make a sequel? And he's like, no. <laughs> so it's really just like somebody else figured this out, which is so weird. Yeah, it's uh, – where do you even go with a sequel for this? I, I, After that ending, I have absolutely no clue. I mean I think it would have to be because the ending establishes that we have ape people living in the society of Earth as we knew it back in 2001, as we know it as humans, it would have to turn into that goofy studio stuff where we'd have, you know, like, oh, here's, here's a, you know, here's a Congress meeting, but they're all apes and stuff like that. <laughs> I don't know. I, I just, ugh. <laughs> uh, no, thank you. That's exactly how I feel about this movie. <laughs> it's a mess, Rob. It's a mess. It's an, it's an absolute mess. It's a boring mess. So... One of the things, like I mentioned earlier, that I wanted to talk about, which I, I was looking into because it was more interesting than this movie, how do you keep track of time in space? That's, oh a, that's a question that I was like, I, well, there's a scene in this movie where, um, you know, they, they find the time storm, 
And then Mark Wahlberg's like, let me do my job. I want to go out of the time storm and see what it is. And they're like, no, we're going to send your, your chimp because that's what the chimps are for. And he, the guy, the, I guess the captain, whoever it would be, he says, your monkey's going to get launched into space at 1600. And I was like, I was like, what? I was like, hold up. How do you keep track of time in space? And well, one, it makes perfect sense and is what they actually do in, in like, you know, the International Space Station and stuff like that, that they have like an actual, you know, hard-coded sense of time, Greenwich Mean Time, and communication with Earth to keep that, you know, fixed. And probably some, you know, with all the computers that they have on space stations, some like actual NTP server to synchronize time. So that makes sense. If you want to establish a time, be like, okay, this is what time is on our space station so we can all get organized, that's fine. The thing that really got me going on this was when Mark Wahlberg goes through the time storm and his clock shows the date changing. How the hell would this computer's clock be able to change going through a time storm? And, and the movie plays it as accurate. Like, I think it would make sense if the, if the clock was just going bonkers haywire, because like they said, it's an electromagnetic storm, so they'd be like, oh, it's messing with his computers or something like that. But as far as I can tell, the movie is playing it as somehow humans at this point in time have invented a clock that can universally tell what time it is. And when I say universally, I mean under any circumstance, because we see it again at the end of the movie. When he goes back to the time storm, it goes back to the, the 2000s or whenever. Shit drove me crazy, Zach. I thought it was a really stupid example of show, not tell, because clearly that we don't have Mark Wahlberg like, I'm going, bro, I'm going forward in time. We see the clock, but it is the dumbest thing, because I don't think that can exist. And so, I did my research, Zach, because like I always like to. I, I'm not purporting to fully understand this, but when people travel through space, as we have today in 2021, they use something called a deep space atomic clock which is based on measuring frequencies of light emitted by mercury ions. From what I gather, all this accomplishes, it's using something fundamental in our universe, not just on Earth, not, like throughout space, to accomplish a stable tick rate, to mimic what the clocks on the Earth were used to, where they you know, have some mechanism that just clicks away at the same, at the same time. There, I don't know if there's any way that if you went through a time storm... It would change the frequency of light emitted by Mercury to impact a clock that way. I could not find an actual answer to that because nobody cares about this movie. <laughs> but this really bothered me. I was angry at this movie about this whole fucking clock going forward in time. And that, I was like, that is one of the dumbest things I've seen in a while. I don't know. Were you fine with the clock? I don't know. <laughs> it, Rob, if only that were the most egregious thing in the film. I yeah like that I feel like that's the thesis of this conversation like <laughs> this this movie is some weird like more egregious than the sum of its egregious parts type of thing <laughs> Exactly exactly Oh god but I mean if any of our listeners know have any space clock knowledge I would love to hear it <laughs> Comment down below Absolutely absolutely I uh, I don't know if I had too much else to say I mean other than you know all these nonsense questions that I have and how none of the movie makes sense and stuff like that. I get, I mentioned it briefly before, but, uh, you know, I, I didn't expect Mark Wahlberg to have a future gun, like you said, the phaser. When he first pulled that gun out of his, like, ship's, like, supplies, and he uses it against uh, the Paul Giamatti ape, I thought it was a flare gun. Like, I thought he just shot a flare into a tree, and that's why, you know, it caused some, some flames and maybe a little bit of explosion. But then they... They break his gun, and later on he has a flare gun. 
And I was like, how'd he get his flare gun back? They broke it. But apparently they're different guns. Like, he just has a laser gun, right? Yes. I, yeah, it's I, – because I, it it's – I remember the design of the laser gun quite well. Because mm-hmm. I remember that because like, that was, like, one of the accessories the toy came with. Sure, sure. And I know, like, in, like, a couple scenes later in the film, like <sighs> – I'm pretty sure once Tim, like General Fade, has the gun, it changes into like a Star Trek phaser at one point. Okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's definitely when he's um, shooting yeah. it constantly in that in the enclosure. It's like you, it ricochets forever, you know. Oh yeah, and which is so strange. So I was very confused while watching the movie. Um, but yeah, just future gun. There you go. It just you got to deal with it. <laughs> future gun. Oh man, yeah. This this movie is something else. Absolutely something else. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to say about Planet of the Apes? Uh, do you know if they're I, – I mean we have the trilogy of the um, – of what I, – I don't even know who directed those. But like uh, Rise, Dawn, and War, whatever order they come in. I couldn't find anything that – I don't think they're making more. If they're making more, nothing's really in production or anything like that. I think that was another franchise that like had diminished returns with each installment. Sure. OK. That, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Um, and I don't know if it's a franchise anybody really cares about, you know? I, I think they had an interesting take on it for Rise, and then, like you said, diminishing returns. I don't, I don't know if there's a lot of people, you know, chomping at the bit for a uh, for Planet of the Apes franchise again. Yeah, um, I don't think so. I know even like this was God, back in like like I, when I was collecting a lot of like the NECA toys back about like five six years ago. Like NECA like started doing toys for the um, like the 1968 series and the new series, and I think they eventually got discontinued because like there just wasn't any demand for them. Sure, sure. Okay, okay. Yeah, that, I mean, like I said, that makes sense. I think Planet of the Apes is always like, like, in, like God. I'd say since like the mid to late '80s has been a niche like fan base. It's, yes. it's not. I would agree. Yeah, I think this is like more or less a franchise that's. Uh, if it's not done, I, they'll try to reboot it in a few years. Like I could, because now <laughs> they can get. Well, Rob. Well, I think you know where I'm going with this, Rob. Now, who owns the Planet of the Apes franchise? Oh God! Oh Jesus! <laughs> what could what could Disney cross this over with? Anything? Uh, yeah, basically anything, right? I mean, oh, God. I think at this point it'd be easier to name things that they couldn't cross it over with because they don't own those rights. I'm even thinking Disney would be the one to say, "Oh, hey, let's do the monkeys doing human things." Like, like, let's make monkeys in like a, an amusement park setting, you know, and stuff like that. <laughs> Like I could, I could see Disney in a few years. Like, give it five to six years, and I could see them doing a Disney Plus show. That's like, that's like some sure very. It would be called like Planet of the Apes Ground Zero. It would be like <laughs> it, it would be something really clever about like COVID and like something like that. I think they're being clever. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That's depressing. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, I I think I can I think Disney's gonna start. Like, I think it's just beginning. Like I know, like we're still like what like a, a year or two away from like the Home Alone reboot, the Alien reboot, the Predator reboot, and this is all going to be like stuff for like Hulu. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So I don't know. I, I think a Planet of the Apes reboot is probably off in the distance because I just, like that series just finished a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. But, um, it's inev- it's inevitable until Disney like circles back to it. Yep, I'm with you. I'm with you. All right. Well, everything that, sucks. With that, oh, of course everything sucks. I mean, that's just <laughs> just what we're learning, especially when we look back 20 years ago. <laughs> uh, I guess with that being said, Zach, unless there's anything else about Marky Mark and the Planet of the Apes, are you ready for our questions? So are you saying, Rob, Marky Mark and the Monkey Bunch? Marky Mark and the Monkey Bunch. That's a good one, Zach. <laughs> 
that that's a good one. And I, I I know we didn't say it, but I read in a lot of reviews, like when I was just looking at like user reviews, um, a lot of people called the last scene the Abraham Lincoln scene. <laughs> I think I like yours better. <laughs> General Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> The puns. Okay, okay. So I, I think we've kind of led up to this already, but uh, for Cinemodities, I'm going to say yes. This is this is wild to look at. It shoots for so much. It's incredibly boring. It's this big failure like we've been discussing. So I have to go yes to Cinemodities. And on that same vein, late night, no. I never want to see this again. I don't want to watch it with anybody. I I think it's you know in my repertoire now. And I will actively hold distaste against it even for years to come. So I'm going to go yes to Cinemodis, no to Late Night. What do you think? Uh, uh, absolute yes to Cinemodis. It's everything that I want in a Cinemodi. Um, I just want gonzo, like, <laughs> high-budgeted cinema. That's all I want in life. Late Night, I think I'm going to go, like, ah. Uh, it's toward the bottom of the list, but I would say yes. Okay. <laughs> because I do think the ending is just enough of a, like, like, you watch this dumb movie and you're just like, what is happening? Like, this is stupid. And then somehow <laughs> the movie has like even a, like, like the perfect cherry on top of stupidity. Okay. I see what you're saying. It just takes so long to get to that ending. <laughs> True. Oh, man. What a, like, oh, man. Maybe even to, because you brought up, of course, the, uh, the good old Batman v Superman uh, talking about you know, just watching the nightmare sequence. What if we had like a fade super cut of this movie where we just watched the fade scenes and then like that last 10 minutes or something. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Like I didn't find this movie boring. Okay. Like, that's okay. the thing is that like, I think this movie is dumb enough that it's, it's palatable for like, okay, well, how about this? I'll put a, a qualifier late night movie, but it's a one-off. Like, like you, you get to use it once and that's kind of it. <laughs> It's sure. a one-off. <laughs> I'm, I'm more in agreement with that, but yeah, I know. I know we've established that I found this much more boring than you did. But okay, okay, that's that's fair. That's fair. Well, then that brings us to snacks, and uh, the first one I have, I, I don't have a lot of snacks for this as well. I mean, this is one of those movies that I didn't fall into the trap of thinking about snacks more, watching the movie more. I was just so so in against this film. A question that I had though is with our infinite void of space. Do we run the risk that a time storm might make its way into the Cinematics restaurant? We don't really know how a time storm can even exist. Uh, maybe we'll, John Ratzenberger will encounter a time storm in the Cinematics restaurant at some point. Um, I just wanted to throw that out there. And if in the Cinematics restaurant there were a time storm, where would it take you? Would it take you to the Cinematics restaurant where everybody's like apes? <laughs> Uh, oh god! I think a time storm is inevitable in the Cinemodi's restaurant. I think yeah, I'm. I'm. That's kind of what I'm. I'm thinking as well. Where it's like you know, it's the the law of very large numbers is that nothing is rare. So a time storm appearing in the restaurant is almost a certainty as long as the restaurant's around long enough. Well, of course. I love the idea. I hope that we could have like find a time storm in the restaurant. I think that'd be so cool because we would totally. I think. The, like I'm not like I'm not pitching that we have a time storm in the restaurant. I just want to play with the idea that if we did have a time storm, we would like set it up as an amusement. Like pay some money and then you can go into the time storm. <laughs> so it's an attraction. Yeah, yeah. If we did have one, we'd have to find a way to like rope it off or something. Because I don't know. I don't even, do we know if the time storm like moves? Is it just like stationary in space? 
Because with the whole, I don't know, it's, this movie makes no sense. Like I said, it's futile to even think about it. But we would totally make an attraction and be like, you know, I would love to see like a family comes to the restaurant and be like, Mommy, Mommy, I want to go into the time storm. And then it's like, okay, Billy, I'll take you to the time storm. And then, you know, they go up, the, like the little kid runs off into the time storm, and then the, uh, the parent, the mom or the dad is like, how long should I come back for pick up my kid? And we're like, well, we don't know. It might be thousands of years. Your kid might be gone forever. <laughs> and since you did not go in with your kid, even if you went in now, there's no chance you would even find your child. <laughs> exactly. So basically what would happen is that they would come out. Think about though, If they went in, they would come out before their child would. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, God. It's the stupidest thing. <laughs> um, in terms of actual snacks... Uh, I think one that that we might both uh, be able to, you might have picked up on it as well, is at the end of the movie, um, when Paul Giamatti just continues to be like a pretty bad dude, and he asks a bunch of kids who wants to buy aspirin. It's it's one of the only legitimately funny moments in the movie. He's like, who wants to buy some aspirin? And all the kids like rush around him. Keep it. You know, I'd like to thank you. For opening my eyes to a brave new world of trade with the humans. Yeah, no problem. Farewell, spaceman. All right, kids. Who wants to buy some aspirin? <laughs> I think that we should sell aspirin to kids in the Cinemodities portion of the restaurant. <laughs> All right. Just, just plain aspirin? Yeah, yeah. Um... I don't know. Do you have any thoughts to like add on to it? Like, would you, would you want to wrap it in like a, a piece of bacon or something? <laughs> <laughs> like a peanut butter thing, like they do for dogs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh god, there's not. A lot, is there a lot of food in this movie? Like, what are they eating in the dinner scene? Like, do we I, get any good looks at the food? I could not tell. No, I mean, even when when Thade like knocks over Mark Wahlberg when he's carrying a tray, it looks like weird indistinguishable like pointy fruit or something like that like okay. i couldn't tell what it was and and i don't think we get any really good shots of the food i think every time we're, we should get a shot of the food it cuts to just like you know facial expressions and things so we don't get to see it but that was that was my big problem i was like you know where's the scene where we have you know uh the monkeys or the apes eating the bugs off of each other or things like that you know the the common things you would think of when you're doing things with with apes and these types of creatures all right I mean, the, the only other snack that I had after the aspirin was, um, uh, I, I would imagine, like, in the in the Cinemize restaurant, just like in a lot of restaurants, we have uh, some decorations around, you know? Whether it be to, to establish an ambiance, you know, we might have, like, a, uh, like, here's a decorative vase, here's a sculpture, you know, maybe some paintings, things like that. Uh, in all of our decorative sculptures around the restaurant, just guns inside them. Like, like, <laughs> like guns hidden inside these sculptures, like prizes inside cereal boxes. And, you know, if you, if you, like, accidentally knock over a vase or something and a gun pops out, you get to keep the gun or something like that. Oh, that'd be great. It's like, oh, I broke your vase. No, actually, you won a gun. Oh. <laughs> yes, yes, that would be great. You have to go to, like, the, the hostess or the, the management and be like, you know, I'm really sorry. My kid bumped into this, into this vase, you know, and it kind of fell over. And you go, no, that's great. Here is your gun. <laughs> it's covered in weird, like, sand or dust or whatever the hell's inside those sculptures. But the, look at what you've won. 
I can imagine that. It's like you read on the news, like a local child like shoots like someone like left like parent left gun out. And you, like you see the parent being like interviewed on like like I don't know like Bay News thirteen, and they're like, <laughs> it wasn't my fault. I put it in the vase like the movie told me to, Your Honor. <laughs> Oh man! Oh, it's 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 crazy. Those those are the only ones I had. I was trying to rack my brain for snacks, and there really is no like food in this movie. We, I mean, we don't even get to see like the apes eating outside of that dinner scene. I mean, those teenage apes are drinking something, but that's indistinguishable, and they're on screen for like what fifteen, ten, fifteen seconds or something like that. It's not a it's not a good restaurant movie, which bummed me out the most because even when I was bored, I was hoping for something to, for the restaurant. And nothing came into play other than the damn time storm. <laughs> All right, so I got a unique item. We're going to call it – we're going to do like – you know we have our like, director's bus? Yeah, yeah. Well, I have an idea for lesser tier directors. Okay. I Okay, I want to do the Burton Burger. <laughs> okay. What it is – like you know like they have like those specialty like coffee beans that like they feed the cheetahs. The cheetah like craps it out. And yes. That's like, like what it is. Yes. What we do is we feed ground beef to like a monkey – or an ape or whatever. <laughs> it then proceeds to crap it out. Then we cook the crapped out ground beef and we call it the uh, Burton Burger. Okay. Uh, now that is a neat idea, Zach. That is something that I don't think anybody's ever thought to do because no one would want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> the Snack Master is back, folks. The yes. Snack Master is back in the saddle. I like that. I, I thought – after you, you set up the cheetah thing with the coffee beans, which I have heard of before, which is a doozy of a concept. That's – Zach's not saying this is something we have in the restaurant prior. That's something that people do in real life. <laughs> but Indeed. I thought you were going to say we take the ground beef and feed it to Tim Burton. <laughs> <laughs> you do that too. He probably would like it. Oh, and then the Tim Burton. And what? What? Other than the the uh, the <laughs> defecated ground beef being the meat, <laughs> would it be just like regular toppings, like regular bun and stuff like that? Of course, of course. Okay, it has to be the regular trimmings. Okay, okay, I like that. That's a that's a doozy of uh, of an idea, Zach. And I would love to see someone be like, the Bert, the Tim Burton burger. I love Tim Burton. You know, let me order that. And it's just the most disgusting thing <laughs> I've ever eaten. <laughs> oh man. Okay. okay, that's good. That's a that's a great one. That's a great one. I don't know. Is there any way you can top that? <laughs> I don't think so, Rob. It's not on this episode. We, remember, next week is the Princess Diary, so who knows what sort of shenanigans the menu will be up to. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. And I think with that being said, that's a great segue. Just like you mentioned, Zach, we are doing the Princess Diaries. We're going to be fully in the Disney realm uh, and, and the kids' movie realm, I think, you know, which we haven't been in for uh, a bit, I think, if I, I don't remember my order. Well, what? we did Atlantis. We did Atlantis. That was what, oh yeah, but that, that's a lot of that's a lot of weeks ago, Zach. <laughs> but the Princess Diaries, we're gonna get what Anne Hathaway get some talk about her, and I'm gonna get to see it for the first time. Julie Andrews, that's right. That's gonna be interesting. So tune in for that. We're gonna be well into the Disney universe, and yeah, whenever Disney comes around, Zach always seems to have a lot of snacks. A la Disneyland sing along songs fun in HD. <laughs> in HD. Uh, I think other than that, if you have any thoughts on space clocks, please write in cinemodities at gmail.com. Let Rob know. I would love to learn more about how you keep time in space. Uh, we can also over uh, always head on over to the Cinemodities subreddit and check out all the information there and even post about space clocks. I want to learn about space clocks. Other than that, check out the Cinemodities Patreon, Cinemodities Plus, uh, www.patreon.com slash cinemodities for even more crazy discussions 
as well as supporting the podcast. I think then the there's only one choice on how to end this episode, as far as I'm concerned, uh, and it's the, the opening credits music from Danny Elfman, because that's the only piece of music that stands out, and it might be the best thing in this movie, right? <laughs> uh, it's one definitely on the better side. Yes, and it, it, it might not sound the greatest played in reverse, uh, just because, you know, it is like this orchestral type of drum beat, so... But we'll see. We'll see how it goes. And at least it's easy, and now we can forget about this movie for the rest of time, which I am totally fine with doing, Zach. <laughs> Are you with me? I'm, a, I'm excited to forget this. Okay, I like that. Perfect. <laughs> 